Hello. Hi there. So, uh, yeah, this is the the weirdest thing podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scotty Milder. I am one of your other hosts, Amelia Poro. We were recording very late at night uh, yep. for various reasons, including yep. my intestines earlier in the week. So, yep. And Scotty yeah. just told me he was like, "My story is going to be long," and so I was like, "Great." I didn't say it was going to be long. I said it was going to be as long as normal. I was initially long. thinking it was going to be short, but it's not actually going to be all that short. So great. Okay. Well, I think I'm going first. So I guess I'll just uh, you are going first. Yeah. So I guess I'll just dive in. Yeah, do it. Okay. So I'm gonna start with a cold open. I'm gonna take you back to about 2004 uh, in the city of Baltimore. Okay. There was a major in the Baltimore Police Department, a guy named Howard Colvin, and he was he he just got fed up. He got fed up with how, you know, the drug problem in the city, the crime problem in the city, you know, the lack of political will to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So he kind of went rogue. Um, and what he ended up doing without any sort of what would the word be uh, approval, I guess, from the city or from his bosses, he decided to basically corral all of the drug users mm-hmm. in his district into about three different zones of areas of the city that had like abandoned houses. So there were like abandoned areas. Okay. And basically push all of the drug use into these three areas to basically move it off of the streets. And then, you know, the drug users and the drug dealers would basically be able to operate with impunity. Okay. This went on for several months and it was interesting. Like his district saw, I think it was about a 13% drop in crime overall. Okay. But of course, you know, this was not sanctioned by the city mm-hmm. <laughs> or by his superiors. So, okay. of course, when, you know, finally came out what he was up to, like the shit just totally hit the fan. Okay. Um. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, none of that happened. Okay. That's, that's actually season three of The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> But what this, so this, uh, anyone who's watched The Wire uh, knows what I'm talking about. This is, of course, Hamsterdam, what they called Hamsterdam on the show. And what this got me thinking was, has anyone ever tried this? Mm -hmm. This idea of like sort of a sanctioned open air drug market. Mm-hmm. And would it work? You know, if you watch The Wire, if you watch the season of The Wire, it sort of depicts it as like problematic, but mm-hmm. also like kind of an effective maybe way to approach drug addiction and drug abuse okay. and, and sort of the toll that it takes on the city. Okay. Um. So I decided to do a little bit of reading to find out if this has ever actually been tried. And lo and behold, it has. So this is going to be the story of the plot spits open air drug market in Switzerland. And basically the idea of like legalization versus decriminalization in general. So, mm, okay. So uh, here's some of my sources from the University of Chicago Legal Forum by a guy named John Bronstein. It was an article, Would Hamsterdam Work? Drug Penalization in the Wire and in Real Life. Okay. Um, that's probably my main source for this story. Also from PBS.org, a guy named Lee Gardner wrote an article called What the Wire Got Right and Wrong About Baltimore. Mm. A New York Times article by Jennifer Piercy from 2018 called Trapped by the Walmart of Heroin. 
an article from The World from Stephanie Knoll from 2016. The U.S. can learn a lot from Zurich and how to fight its heroin crisis. Mm. The Alcohol and Drug Foundation overview, decriminalization versus legalization. And then from coffeeordie.com from 2021, Hamsterdam in real life. HBO's The Wire predicted Baltimore's decision to abandon the war on drugs. Nice. And then, of course, Google, Wikipedia, and The Wire. Fantastic. Okay, so to start off, we should just talk about, like, the difference between, like, different policies. You know, okay. you hear all these terms, decriminalization, depenalization, legalization, mm. etc. So let's mm-hmm. talk about what this is. So the typical United States position up till maybe the last few years has really been, like, hard criminalization of drugs. Right. This is, of course, the war on drugs, quote unquote. Right. And so our position has been pretty zero tolerance. What this means is that hard drugs are criminalized and that the criminal laws are enforced vigorously with the primary goals of retribution, deterrence, and incapacitation. So from that Alcohol and Drug Foundation article, uh, Mm -hmm. it says, what this means is that addicts are managed through the court system. If a person is found guilty and convicted, punishment may include jail time. The person will also have a criminal record. A criminal conviction can result in the breakdown of personal relationships and close off future employment, housing, and travel options. Mm -hmm. For example, future employers may reject a job application because of a criminal record. A person with a criminal record may not be granted a visa to visit other countries. The stigma of a criminal record may cause mental anguish. Having a criminal record can severely impact on someone's life, which, you know, might mean you're making it harder for them to to stop using drugs right just a thought yeah just, i was, I was, I was gonna ask like <laughs> if criminalization if there's any evidence that it works yeah well get that, like ruining people ruining people's lives is like that's a good deterrent yeah I'll, we'll, we'll get into it but short answer no great okay <laughs> fantastic so, that's what um, I so the other side of the spectrum i guess you would say is legalization Mm-hmm. So this basically takes the drug problem not as like a criminal matter, but as a public health problem. Mm-hmm. So again, from that uh, Alcohol and Drug Foundation article, it says at the extreme, a nation could simply legalize drugs such as heroin, cocaine, and marijuana, and then treat them the way the United States currently treats alcohol and tobacco. Yeah. In that case, people could legally buy heroin at a store and use it without breaking any law. Basically, from what I can tell, there's no countries that actually do that, that go that far far do you mean in terms of like the drugs that they've legalized right like Like legalizing all drugs no penalty okay it's you know buying heroin is no different than buying a cup of coffee okay from what i can tell other than maybe like you know failed states where there's sort of just anarchy (laughs) right like i couldn't find an example of a country that just essentially thrown out all drug laws okay So that leaves us in like the gray area of decriminalization, Mm, okay, which is not the same as legalization, obviously. Okay. So decriminalization means that while drugs aren't formally legalized, authorities essentially stop applying like the existing criminal penalties for personal use. Um, Usually that'll mean that like manufacturing distribution are still considered criminal, at least to some degree, but actually just possession of drugs and using drugs is not. There may be like civil fines. Um, So like, you know, you may, you know, not get arrested, but you'll get some sort of citation and you have to pay a penalty. A lot of times, rather than being arrested, you get referred to a drug treatment program, you know, things like that. Another way of doing this is 
basically looking the other way. So this is the Hamsterdam idea from The Wire. Okay. Is we're going to push drugs into these areas where they cause the least amount of damage. And then we're just going to like let it be beyond Thunderdome. Okay. Within that area. You know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The look on your face is right there. Was Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so on The Wire, the way it's this character, Bunny Colvin, the, the police major, he equates it to... I think this is based on a true story. Back in like the 1940s and 50s, the city of Baltimore made illegal having an open container of alcohol, like anywhere on the streets. Okay. Sort of anywhere outside of like your home. Okay. And this was a major problem because, you know, people in in Baltimore and a lot of East Coast cities, you don't have a yard. You don't necessarily have, you know, it's like you sit on your stoop or you stand on the corner and you have your drink you know right but all of a sudden the police were being turned towards you know rather than solving crimes it's like there's a guy with an open container go bust him Um, which was turning the city against the police turning the police against the citizens of the city he's got a great monologue on the show uh where he's like this is before my time when it happened but somewhere back in 50s or 60s there was a small moment of goddamn genius by some nameless smokehound who comes out to cut rate one day. And on his way to the corner, he slips that just bought pint of elderberry into a paper bag. A great moment of civic compromise. That small, wrinkle ass paper bag allowed the corner boys to have their drink in peace. And it gave us permission to go and do police work. The kind of police work that's actually worth the effort. That's worth actually taking a bullet for. Dozerman, you got shot last night trying to buy three vials. Three. There's never been a paper bag for drugs. Until now. And he says, you know, the problem is there's never been a paper bag for drugs. True. So the idea of Amsterdam is the paper bag for drugs. What this means is essentially hiding it. Right. right? So those are kind of the two approaches to decriminalization. Um, And if you look at, like, marijuana in this country, it's in, like, a very strange place because, like, in a state like Colorado, it's Mm -hmm. essentially, on a state level, legalized. Not decriminalized, but legalized. Mm -hmm. But on a federal level, it's still criminalized. So you're you're still in this weird decriminalization kind of gray area. Mm -hmm. You know? That's why, like, if you have ever gone to, like, a dispensary in Colorado, it's all still, like, well, really anywhere. It's all still a cash business. You know, mm-hmm. so back to that uh, alcohol and drug foundation article, it says about decriminalization, it says, you know, civil cases do not have to go through the court system and may be dealt with by tribunals. So while records may be kept by a tribunal, these are not criminal records and will not affect employment, housing or travel opportunities. The key difference to a criminal model is that in a decriminalized model, while penalties still apply for use and possession of drugs, they are no longer criminal charges. So it just okay. it reduces the stigma. 
Okay. And you know, you there may be some sort of record somewhere, but like your employer and your your landlord isn't necessarily going to have access to those records. Right. You know? I mean, if it goes into like drug treatment and stuff, I would think HIPAA would apply. You know, the the privacy patient privacy act. I'm not sure. Uh, who knows? But yeah, I don't know. The other advantage to decriminalization is that it, it may reduce the strain on the criminal justice system by reducing the burden on the court system, time spent by police and legal practitioners on court matters, and mm-hmm. of course, costs of imprisonment. So just a few statistics. About 25% of the world's total prison population is in the United States. <laughs> so we incarcerate wow. about 25% of everyone in the world who's incarcerated. Good job. America first, guys. (laughs) Yeah. That means that in 2019, about 2.19 million people were incarcerated in this country. Of that number, about 450,000 were incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses. I am irate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just in general. I'll just, just know that for the rest of the episode. Yeah. I'm livid at the fact that like a drug charge can land somebody in jail and Mm -hmm. like a rape charge won't. Right. Well, like, you know, sometimes like, you know, a rapist will get probation or something and yeah. like, it gets wiped from the record and a drug charge can follow you your entire life. Yeah. And like, you, can, I you could... can spend 10, 15, 20 years in prison for a minor drug offense. And, yeah. and like Brock Turner, three months in jail Ugh, or even less. I... I think he didn't even spend that much time. Yeah. I, I could give two shits about whether or not somebody is choosing to, it just, it, it fucking. Yeah. I could give two shits about whether or not somebody is injecting black tar heroin. Mm -hmm. And like, that's, you know, that's it. They just like went out and bought some heroin with some money and then like took it home and shot up. Mm -hmm. I would much rather the backlog get cleared. I would much rather Mm -hmm. for there to be more, more justice for victims of of sexual assault. Like, yeah, everything just, yeah, yeah, I'm mad. Yeah. Well, well, and I mean, but that's exactly right. Like this is the problem with the drug war is Mm. that, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many problems with the drug war. One of which is like, I've, told my friends this before like my uh pot smoking friends who i I love very much Mm -hmm. Um, but like you know there's a reason why you maybe want to like get your medical card get things from a dispensary you know rather than you know just buy swag because what you're doing is you're fueling the violence in mexico Yes. You know, the war on drugs has created the black market for drugs. Yes. It has led to mass incarceration, which has mm-hmm. led to straining of the justice system. Yes. And of course, it is a big part of what has led to all this need for police reform that we talk about. Yes. And, you know, again, to quote the character from The Wire, Howard Colvin, where he says, You call something a war, and pretty soon everyone is going to be running around acting like warriors. It's, I don't actually know if it's the same thing, but I remember after September 11th when it was like the war on terror. And I was like, this sounds like the war on Mm -hmm. drugs. Right. Well, and it's just, you know, between the war on drugs and the war on terror, this is a big part of why the police have essentially become militarized in this country. So let's talk about some areas where decriminalization and essentially open air drug markets have been tried. Okay. So uh, let's talk about the Netherlands. This is the most famous open air drug market city in the world. Of course, we're talking about Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone thinks, oh, marijuana is legal in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. But that's not exactly true. It's been right. decriminalized in Amsterdam. So this all goes back to 1976 when uh, the Netherlands enacted what was called the Revised Opium Act. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and this differentiated between drugs like heroin and cocaine, which they called, quote, unacceptable risks and cannabis, cannabis based drugs. I think mm-hmm. even including hashish, yeah. which they call an acceptable risk. Mm-hmm. So under this statute, selling or possessing cannabis was still a crime, but the maximum penalty for any amount, 30 grams or less, was one month in jail. Essentially, it was meant, quote, to allow a personal supply sufficient for two weeks. It would also enable users to share some stuff with their friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so from that Chicago law thing uh, article that I read, uh, here's a quote. It says, this is strange on its face. If the Dutch government considered small quantities of marijuana to be a, quote, acceptable risk, and if it wanted to allow a personal supply, then why did it write a law criminalizing possession of these small quantities of marijuana? The answer may be that the Netherlands had signed an international treaty in 1961 compelling it to criminalize such drug possession. Mm. Faced with that obstacle, but still wanting to allow the sale of marijuana for personal use, the Netherlands capitalized on its system of criminal law enforcement. That system uses formal guidelines to interpret how and even whether to enforce the statutory prohibitions on behavior. So it continues and says the Dutch have committed themselves to the principle of expediency or opportunity, which formally allows discretionary powers to the police and the prosecution. The use of this principle of expediency is not limited to the necessity of setting priorities in order to cope with scarcity of resources. In fact, the main function of the principle of expediency is to prevent prosecutions that are not in the best public interest. So along with sort of relaxing these drug laws down to, you know, even if you have up to 30 grams of marijuana, you can only serve Legally, you can only serve one month in jail. They also instituted formal guidelines, basically telling the police, just don't arrest anybody for buying, selling, using, or possessing less than 30 grams. Okay. And even to allow such transactions in, like, coffee shops, which is why Amsterdam is so famous. You can go into a coffee shop and buy your marijuana. So what's weird about it is that it's still on the books as being illegal, which mm. essentially allows the Netherlands to keep these treaty obligations. Like they're sort of by the letter of the law fulfilling their treaty obligations, but they've essentially created a quote de facto legalization of okay. cannabis. Yeah, yeah. Now, this doesn't apply, of course, to like heroin, cocaine, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was trying to find like studies to show like what the effect of this is. And what they show is that other countries in the area have significantly less numbers of young like marijuana users than Amsterdam. Amsterdam, it certainly didn't decrease the number of users mm. of marijuana mm-hmm. to decriminalize it. And I had a hard time finding like it was a lot of contradictory information about like how this affects crime rates in other areas like violent crime, property crime, things like yeah. that. Yeah. But it certainly doesn't seem like it wasn't like, you know, the apocalypse. And one thing that was interesting is that it's like, well, you know, the Netherlands has a relatively high rate of use of marijuana compared to its neighboring countries, mm-hmm. putting it at about the per capita usage of the U.S. Okay. Which is interesting because like up until recent years, we had one of the most restrictive policies on marijuana and still we're using people are smoking pot in numbers way higher than most of Europe. Right. So clearly like strict anti-drug laws don't necessarily decrease drug usage. 
Right. That's what we keep trying to. Well, uh, never mind. Uh, (laughs) Because the thing is, is that like, that's what we say, right? We say that we say it with drugs. We say that with access to abortion. But then when we do try to say, hey, but we need to like, we need to create some kind of limitations on Mm -hmm. like the availability of firearms. People are like, but remember, it doesn't work. And like, it's like, God, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the thing is, like, when it comes to gun violence in this country, when it comes to drug use in this country, mm. you know, there's so much talk about, you know, what we can do with laws, you know, gun laws, drug laws, etc. Yeah. But like, these are cultural problems that yeah. are pretty unique to the u.s yeah and i don't and i don't have answers for either of those problems yeah drugs or guns (laughs) yeah okay so let's talk about something that's closer to hamsterdam so we talked about actual amsterdam Mm -hmm. hamsterdam of course is from the wire Mm -hmm. and it's this idea of these quote free zones which the locals start calling hamsterdam Mm -hmm. where basically it is it's a free-for-all like as long as you're in these areas, which are like abandoned row house areas, like okay. nobody lives there, you can do whatever the fuck you want. And it is depicted on the show as being sort of like beyond Thunderdome, at okay. least at first. Like okay. it, it is, it's ugly. The closest example we have to something like that is the plot spits in Switzerland. Okay. So back in the late 1980s, I think it was 1987, the city of Zurich essentially tried to do something very similar to Amsterdam. Switzerland was known to have very strict drug laws mm-hmm. at this point. But the quote from that Chicago law, whatever thing, uh, it says, the harms from that strict approach led local officials to carve out an exception within their jurisdiction. Okay. So I think, and when you talk about the harms, it didn't really elaborate on that, but I think it's like the harms that we're seeing over incarceration. Okay. It's, you know, creating a black market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a few differences between the situation of the plot spits in uh, Zurich and Amsterdam on the wire. One of which was like on the wire, it's depicted as like this rogue cop does it himself. Right. Um, which of course creates a lot of drama, you know. In Zurich, it was actually the uh, city council decided to try this. Okay. Another big problem, or, or I should say difference, but that led to problems is that Zurich is not like Baltimore. Baltimore is typical of a lot of cities like Detroit. A lot of these kind of rust belt economically Mm. depressed cities we have a shrinking city center Mm -hmm. and you have people moving out to the suburbs and Mm -hmm. you have this ring of like essentially abandoned like right like derelict yeah derelict areas of the city yeah zerg doesn't have that um it's known as being a quote city without slums so okay where are you gonna put this (laughs) (laughs) like like, can we should we build a slum like yeah how do we do this well, there's a park called the Plotspitz Park. Okay. Um, it's right behind the main train station in Zurich. Okay. They were like, that's a good place for it. Um, so basically the idea was we're going to put it behind this train station. The reason they picked this train station is even though it's kind of, whereas Amsterdam is depicted as being kind of on the outskirts of the populated areas, mm-hmm. this was right in the middle of everything, mm-hmm. but it's still kind of blocked off. It, it was surrounded on three sides by water. And then the other side, there's like a big old wall. Okay. Okay. So it's still kind of isolated. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the paper bag solution. It's, we're just going to hide it from view. 
Right. So they pushed all the drug users and drug dealers into this area and for about five years. And they, you know, they made it a rule. Like the police were not allowed to go into this park and arrest people for using drugs. Okay. So it was, it was an open air drug market. Okay. Did it work? Was it a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Was it? So this is from that Chicago law article. It says like Amsterdam and unlike Amsterdam, the plot spits was no coffee shop. It was a Hieronymus Bosch vision of a drug hell. So everything I've read about it is it's like it it became known as Needle Park. Mm. It was hyper crowded, Mm. violent, just open prostitution, Mm. dead people everywhere from overdoses. It really was to be in the plot spits was a terrible experience. And it wasn't under the radar. Like, you know, whereas like Amsterdam was a secret, you uh-huh. know, everyone knew about the plot spits. In fact, it got international no- notoriety for being this just free for all drug market. Mm-hmm. Um, Like I said, you know, as much as I love The Wire, like I've said before, it's the second greatest TV show of all time after uh, air crash investigation. Correct. It presents a, an almost, I, I would say, a pretty naive view of what one of these drug markets would look like. Right. One thing it doesn't, you know, The Wire doesn't really deal with is the idea like, well, would you increase the number of drug users by making the availability of drugs so easy? And The Wire just kind of doesn't address that uh-huh. as a potential problem. It just sort of treats it as like there's a fixed number of drug users. And the idea is like just move them into this area where they're not causing problems anywhere else. <sighs> you know, there are problems within the area, which is mm-hmm. you know a big part of the plot of the show. But definitely shows like, you know, but it's taking crime off of the streets. And, you know, the people of these neighborhoods get to like live in peace. And, you know, well, in the plot spits. Because it was behind this train station, and of course, Switzerland being different than Baltimore in that it's like an international hub. Like Zurich is an international hub. It's like, if you look, it's like right in the middle of fucking Europe. Yeah. People were flocking to the Plast Spitz to use drugs there from all over Europe, not just from Switzerland. Ah, okay. So this meant that up to 3,000 people a day were in this park using heroin, cocaine, crack. whatever the overall number of heroin users in switzerland jumped from around three thousand people in 1975 to about thirty thousand in 1992 whoa yeah and the number of drug-related deaths increased 12-fold whoa now it's hard to draw like a direct line between this policy of you know creating the plot spits and these numbers and it should be noted that you know this 30,000 number versus 3,000 in 1975 mm-hmm. is a lot of these are going to be non-Swiss people coming in from other countries mm-hmm. okay. you know it, it became a magnet so it didn't necessarily create that many new drug users but it drew all those drug users to this okay area. okay so here's a quote from the world article it says as some witnesses from the time put it you could see drug users lying in their own blood and feces while others were shooting up beside them. The park reeked of vomit and decay unfolding the camp. Rats were everywhere. It also caused the price of cocaine and heroin to drop, which may have created an increased demand for those drugs. Okay. That makes Um, sense. And then this probably led to an increase in crime. And again, part of the problem is that this area was right in the middle of the fucking city. 
Mm-hmm. So it says the number of robberies and muggings almost doubled in the downtown areas around the plot spits as the population of addicts in the park expanded. There had been a small number of gruesome homicides, apparently the result of battles between rival drug dealing gangs, mostly from Eastern Europe and the Mideast. So on The Wire, it sort of depicts like, you know, one of the rules of Amsterdam is that there's no violence in Amsterdam. Okay. Like that's the one thing the cops will go in and bust your heads if you pull a gun or mm-hmm. you know um this doesn't seem to have been the case in the plot spits yeah like, i was gonna ask if there was any kind of like i get that the police are you know we're told don't go in there and arrest anybody for drug use but like it seems like know, it was, from what i've read it, it just like became it a just, free-for-all it was hands-off yeah mm. um but there were some good some good things that came out of this. Okay. Probably the biggest was that by congregating drug users into this one open area where they could do what they do with no fear of penalty, mm-hmm. this allowed like public health officials to come in and distribute clean needles. Right. Provide condoms to sex workers, mm-hmm. bring food, bring blankets, you know. Okay. Um, and this is also something that was depicted on the wire. You know, it starts off as Beyond Thunderdome, and then once the public health officials kind of find out about it and the social service networks start moving in, you start seeing some positive changes and Mm -hmm. and actually some people being like put into treatment programs and things like that. And it does sound like some of that did happen in the plot spits, but it's hard to say that like the benefits outweighed the costs. Right. The other thing that happened was emergency services were just overwhelmed by overdoses. Oh, yeah. So like we're talking about, you know, unveiled vaxxed covid people overwhelming icus Mm -hmm. this would have been like you know people ODing on heroin overwhelming emergency you know it ended up being terrible publicity for zurich (laughs) and so they you know it started in 1987 and about five years later 1992 they were like nope we're done and they went in and just cleaned house put an end to this experiment So this is from that Chicago article. It says, it will be easy to conclude from this information that the plot spits was a failure. It ended quickly and ignominiously due to public outrage, just like Amsterdam. And unlike Amsterdam, it seems to have brought crime and violence to its surrounding neighborhoods. Also unlike Amsterdam, it may well have increased drug use in part by attracting worldwide attention. By this accounting, it would seem to have done exactly the opposite of what the Zurich authorities intended. Mm. Rather than keep the advantages of Amsterdam's legalization approach while reducing the harm, i.e. wider drug use of that approach, the plot spit seemed not to achieve the advantages that The Wire and others attribute to legalization or depenalization, like reduced crime and violence, Mm -hmm. while retaining the harm of those policies by attracting drug users via lower prices and shelter from arrest. In trying to be the best of both worlds, it was arguably the worst of both. And even if it had, despite appearances, improved people's lives on the whole, it still could not be counted a success because, like Amsterdam, it was terminated by virtue of being a public relations disaster. So the simple verdict would be that the plot spits was a failure. But the article continues. It says, the truth, however, is probably more complicated. For one thing, the plot spits shared Amsterdam's advantage of bringing public health officials to the place where drug users now had to congregate. Mm-hmm. Although it is hard to measure all the benefits of that fact given the available data, such benefits were likely considerable. Indeed, one crucial measure of its success is that the rates of HIV fell. Mm. And this is like 87 to 92. This is like the height of the HIV crisis. Yeah. And for another thing, knowing that thousands of people bought drugs at the plot spits does not tell us whether the drug use increased. It may Mm. be that the plot spits, like Amsterdam, simply became the destination of choice for people who previously bought their drugs elsewhere. 
Similarly, the drug-related crime around the plot spits, which crime was not in residential neighborhoods, but rather in the, quote, underground shopping area adjacent to the train station, may well have been displaced from alternative areas where it would otherwise have occurred. And that's like what they do show on The Wire, is mm. that, you know, even though it's terrible in Amsterdam, the surrounding areas are able to kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Right. You know? Like it's pretty, it's pretty contained. Right. That, I mean, that's the whole idea behind it. Right. Um, so it continues. It says, indeed, given the low rates of crime in the plot spits, we cannot rule out the possibility that its existence actually decreased crime on the whole, just like Amsterdam's existence did. So it seems kind of inconclusive. <laughs> yeah. Whether this was a good idea or not. But what's interesting about this is that after the plot spits kind of collapsed, you know, the users dispersed throughout the city and they caused more problems and actually formed sort of smaller but equally dangerous, quote, drug camps all around the city. Mm. And so, you know, the the officials, the city officials of Zurich were like, we need to do something. Like, we can't go back to the status quo because that didn't work. The city and then the country of Switzerland kind of followed suit. Um, they decided they were going to take a new approach. And this approach was really emphasizing therapy and treatment. And the idea now was to treat addicts and reintegrate them into society. So here's some of the reforms that happened in Zurich and then in Switzerland as a whole. Okay. In 1992, Zurich made methadone available to essentially all heroin users, many of whom had previously been denied treatment. And just so you, if you don't know, methadone is uh, what's called a replacement therapy. It's basically like an opiate that helps with like withdrawal symptoms and stuff, but doesn't cause the intoxication that heroin and other opiates do. So, mm, okay. I don't think it's I a way that about methadone. Yeah. It's a way of like maintaining because the thing is like going off of heroin, cold Turkey is real fucking dangerous. Right. Like, you can die just from the withdrawal. So methadone right. is a way to kind of maintain and like step down. Okay. Right? Okay. And so they just made methadone much more widely available. That was in 1992, so kind of right as the plot spits was ending. Um, in 1994, they started giving actual heroin prescriptions to heavy and long-term users where, like, methadone hadn't worked or hadn't mm -hmm. helped. Mm -hmm. They were like, okay, we're just going to start prescribing heroin to you, but we're going to manage it. We're going to okay. manage it with a doctor. Okay. We're going to manage your use. And that seemed to, like, have a lot of positive benefits. Really? Yeah, because they're not, you know, they're not buying it on the street. You're you're getting clean needles as part of your prescription. Mm -hmm. You have a doctor monitoring you and maybe can actually help you step down. Okay. You know? The police and social service organizations were, like, all on board with this. Like, they totally cooperated. Mm -hmm. And within a few years, there was, like, really positive results were being seen from this approach. Okay. Switzerland is sort of, like, typically very conservative mm -hmm. by European standards, mm -hmm. you know? In sort of, I think, the classic kind of tough-on-crime, free-market pro-business kind of sense but they actually by 1997 the entire swiss government had sort of gone against these conservative leanings and had rejected proposals to go back to stricter drug policies instead they actually formalized in law this less punitive approach and then by 2008 all of these policies have been put into like formal law Hmm. So today in Switzerland, almost 70% of heroin addicts are on some sort of substitution or replacement therapy. That's the highest rate anywhere in the world. So that would be like methadone and other drugs like that. Mm -hmm. And then in addition, about 8% of addicts still to this day receive prescriptions for heroin. Wow. 
Like it's totally been normalized in Switzerland. And it sounds like Switzerland's kind of the only country that does that. Yeah. Like it's still very controversial. It doesn't sound like really a lot of other places have adopted that kind of policy. Yeah. But it seems to work in Switzerland. So here's a quote from a guy named Philo Beck. He's the chief of psychiatry at the Arud Centers for Addiction Medicine, which I believe is in Denmark, but just it looked like their website was in Denmark, but I'm not sure. But they're a nonprofit founded in 1991 to provide addicts with adequate therapy. He says, we see almost no new heroin users in Switzerland. The comprehensive policies Switzerland adopted 20 years ago were very important in that respect. So it's not like there's not at all a drug problem in heroin. Like heroin use is way down in Switzerland, but cocaine use is still really high. Mm. But they do talk to this guy in one of the articles. I can't remember which one. They talked to this guy who just goes by the name Mark. He was a recovered drug addict, used to be a user at the plot spits. Okay. And they talked to him. You know, they go back to the park now. The park's still there. And it's now become this like very beautiful like family park you know and so he goes to the plot spits and they talk to him he's like sitting on a park bench and he says i think back remembering how it looked comparing it with today it's like black and white the horrible conditions the scum just everything if it had continued i'd be dead today considering that i've pulled through this all right wow yeah so let's uh talk about just a couple other places in their approach to like trying to think outside the box in terms of dealing with the drug problem So Portugal, this Mm -hmm. is something I didn't know. Portugal entirely overhauled its drug laws in 2001 Mm -hmm. and essentially decriminalized all drugs. Okay. Um, So now if you're caught with drugs in Portugal, it's not a criminal offense. It's an administrative charge, which I think is like a civil charge. Okay. Um, So like if you're caught with small amounts of heroin, cocaine, marijuana, really any drugs, you don't go through the criminal justice system. Instead, you deal with what's called the commissions for the dissuasion of drug addiction. And here's a quote from that Chicago law article. It says, here's how it works. If you use drugs and get caught, the police confiscate the drugs and issue a citation requiring you to appear within 72 hours before this commission. The commission is a panel of three people who may well be lawyers, doctors, or social workers. That panel then tries to learn whether you are addicted to drugs. If so, it will probably recommend you receive treatment instead of sanctions. If not, it may impose community service or a fine. The panel's purpose is to reduce drug use so non-addicts receive disincentives and addicts receive help. So it's kind of like getting a parking ticket. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know like how steep the fines are. Right. Right. But again, it goes back to this idea of like Like a speeding ticket, I guess, kind of. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like it goes back to this idea of decriminalization. Like it's not legal, but we're not going to put you through the criminal justice system. You're not going to go to prison. You're not going to be stigmatized for the rest of your life. Right. We're going to try and get you help. And if you're not an addict, if you're just, you know, being dumb and you know using drugs, no judge, no judge. Um, <laughs> it was a hella um, judgy. Like we're gonna we're gonna make it like unpleasant for you. You're gonna have to pay some money, but right. So the article continues. This is Portugal enacted its reforms in response to an epidemic of infectious diseases such as HIV and AIDS. They were being spread by the use of heroin and other injectable drugs. The reforms were a huge success in addressing that problem. Between 2000 and 2008, the number of cases of HIV reduced among drug users from 907 to 267. And the number of cases of AIDS reduced from 506 to 108. Wow. So that's pretty steep. Yeah. They also say that the number of like overdose deaths went way down. 
mm-hmm. between 1999 and 2008. They call it a, quote, steady decline. And they say, overall, many fewer people in Portugal died from drugs in the years immediately following the 2001 reforms than in the years immediately preceding them. Wow. Yeah. So and are start- they are they still, like, is that still how Portugal is running yeah. things? Yeah. That's, Interesting. That's, that's Portugal's. That's Portugal's plan. And okay. They're, they're sticking to it. Great. So, okay. So where do things stand in the U.S. at this point? Mm. Well, we're kind of in a hodgepodge right now. We are moving towards decriminalization. And it's becoming, like, I mean, you and I, we're old enough to remember, like, you know, Nancy Reagan, just say no. Yeah. Know, dare and all that <laughs> yes. stuff. Um, Which is like a complete and utter failure. If you want to listen to a great episode, yeah. a great podcast about the failure of dare, uh, you can listen to the podcasts you're wrong about. And they have a whole thing yeah. about the war on drugs uh, mm-hmm. and how, you know, like most things it is, uh, you know, it's pretty rooted in racism and all racism, sorts of fun stuff. And then also just a lot of like bullshit, like PR, you know, yeah. like no one's actually dealing with any of the problems, but it all looks real good. Like, I remember, like, mm-hmm. Nancy Reagan in the 80s being going on fucking different strokes to tell Gary Coleman to just say mm-hmm. no to drugs. Schools, Even at the t- being like, this is stupid. This is fucking dumb. Yeah, schools would get funding and, like, a lot of it mm-hmm. to have, like, a whole D.A.R.E. program. But the thing is, is, like, it didn't work mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Like, it was an abject failure. Yeah, I mean, the war on drugs in this country, just across the board, has been an mm. abject failure. Like, well, there's really n- nothing good you can point to that's come from it. Yeah, the it, like the war on drugs was a extraordinarily downstream solution. Yeah, like it was just like, don't do drugs, and it was like, are you going to address any of the any of the issues that lead to people right. using and abusing drugs? And they were like, nope, we're just gonna say, don't do them. Right. Meanwhile, the CIA is distributing crack in black neighborhoods. Right. Like, I mean, it's just like our countries. I know you've talked about doing it on the show. Like this Mm -hmm. is, you know, I'm trying to just do like a piece of the story, but Mm -hmm. like any story dealing with the war on drugs. I mean, it's just going to spiral out in like a million different directions and none of them lead to a good place. Yeah. No, I mean, like it like literally it was an abject failure because when, when I was saying, you know, that schools were getting funding, you know, you have to report on that stuff. You have to be like, Hey, here's what we did with the money. And here were the outcomes and the outputs and all that stuff. And all of it was like, there are none. (laughs) Like (laughs) everybody's doing the same amount of drugs. Nobody has said no, (laughs) no, nobody's done anything. And we've spent, you know, at least millions of dollars doing this completely pointless program. But we are in this fledgling place where, and and it's interesting, there's a political consensus kind of on both the left and the right in this country Mm -hmm. that what we have been doing for the last 50 years hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. And obviously we all remember this last presidential election, the big knock on Joe Biden, which I'm not going to get into it, but it was like not entirely fair, but not entirely unfair Mm. was his support of the crime bill in the 90s Mm -hmm. i remember the crime bill and i remember all the movement towards the crime bill the reason i say it's not fair to knock joe biden for it is it was like everyone was behind Mm. Mm -hmm. like you know black community leaders were behind it 
you know, obviously not everyone. Like, you know, there not were definitely, un- yeah, not universally, but, but it was, it was mainstream across race class. Like people were like, you know, super predators, you know, right. To crack down on all this. Yeah. And, they were working with some pretty bad information, working with some pretty bad information and bad assumptions. And we're seeing the fruits of those decisions now, which has mm-hmm. led to this pretty bipartisan, still in its early stages, like move towards wanting to think about ways to change over incarceration, to mm. to take on different aspects of drug treatment. Also, I think, you know, the rise of this opioid crisis in like red states has definitely and and you know things like yeah. you know Purdue Pharma and you know pushing mm-hmm. OxyContin and how much has come out about that. People are realizing this is across the country. Like mm-hmm. this is everybody is at, at risk mm-hmm. of this. We need to do something different. So there is we're trying some things. Obviously, I think you know the canary in the coal mine in this country for decriminalization is marijuana. Yeah. And that seems to be almost like a foregone conclusion at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. I think within a fairly short period of time, I'm pretty sure marijuana is just going to be legalized. Mm. When it comes to the harder drugs, there's a lot less agreement on what to do. So let's just talk about a couple examples. Uh, You know, a lot of different cities are trying different levels of decriminalization. Mm -hmm. Um, I think even New York has moved towards decriminalization in some aspects. Results vary. Um, so probably the closest we have in this country to something that looks like Amsterdam from the wire is the Kensington neighborhood in Philadelphia. Mm, Okay. So it's, it's, it's an area that's like filled with like two-story row houses, abandoned factories, a lot of vacant lots, DEA special agent. This is from that New York times article, DEA special agent, Patrick trainer calls it quote, the largest open air drug market for heroin on the East coast and said it's known for having the cheapest and purest heroin in the region. It's also a major supplier for like dealers in Delaware, New Jersey, and Maryland. Wow. So just like the Eastern Seaboard. Basically. Right. Philadelphia County has the highest overdose rate of any of the 10 most populous counties in America. The city's Department of Health estimates that about 75,000 people are addicted to opioids. Many of them go to Kensington to buy their drugs. Mm. The area is part of the largest cluster of overdose deaths in the city. Oof. So like in 2017, 236 people overdosed. Couple differences between Kensington and Amsterdam. Amsterdam, like I said, it was, you know, the police were actively on the show. The police were actively pushing drug dealers, drug users into these areas where essentially nobody lived. Mm-hmm. Sounds like in Philadelphia, it's more like the police just gave up on these neighborhoods, Ooh. on this neighborhood. Okay. So like, there's still people who live there. Ooh, like, yeah. like it's not an abandoned area of town. Yeah. It's a poor area. So people are like stuck, you know, they they don't necessarily have the resources to move out. It's also not really like sanctioned by the city in any official way or anything. It's just the police have stopped arresting people there. Basically what it sounds like from this article is if you find someone ODing, you just pump them full of Narcan and then send them on their way. It also doesn't sound like they have any of the social service support that you saw on the wire. You know, you don't have the mm. needle exchanges and things like that. Okay. Um, so, so they've just basically been like, that's a failed neighborhood. Basically. Good luck to anybody who lives there. That's what it sounds We're like. We're out. Okay. Now, it seems like there are plans to make some changes. Okay. So there's a new mayor as of 2016, a guy named Jim Kinney. He made cleaning up the opioid problem like a major part of his platform when he ran for mayor. 
And so when he won, he created a task force and the task force includes addiction experts, doctors, DEA agents, and social workers. And the whole idea was to come up with a plan. This task force ended up making 18 recommendations. One is including a media campaign about the risk of opioids, which just feels real like Nancy Reagan just say no to me. Like, do we need the media campaign? Like, like what's that (laughs) going to do? Like, you know, just, it, it feels like more of the same to me. Right. But on top of that, they're also doing a wider distribution of Narcan and other like substitution therapies like methadone. So they're making it more widely available. They're trying to clean up areas like Kensington. They also talk about this area called the Railroad Gulch, which sounds like it's like a ditch along a railroad that is just notorious for drug users. Mm. They're essentially bulldozed it um, and they're moving people out. Okay. And it sounds like they're also trying to do that in Kensington. Now, the problem with this would be, well, you just, you move them out, they go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's that's a little not a solution. Yeah. It's a little bit like, you know, when they're like, get out of here, homeless people. And it's like, right. they're it's, not going to disappear. Right. They're not going to like in, in the thin air, like they will go somewhere else. Right. But so the good thing is they actually seem to realize this. Mm, okay. <laughs> so while they're like bulldozing the railroad gulch, they're not bulldozing Kensington because like I said, it's a neighborhood, but they're trying to move people out. They're also using their Office of Homeless Services and the Department of Behavioral Health to get as many addicts into treatment and supportive housing as possible. Okay. Now this article is a couple years old and I wasn't able to find anything. To, and it sounds like these programs were just being instituted. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't able to find much to say. We probably won't know for like 10 years how successful this is. Yeah. Let's talk about Baltimore, which okay. is, of course, where the wire is set. Like I said, I was faking you out at the beginning. Hamsterdam never mm-hmm. existed in mm-hmm. Baltimore. But what's interesting is that the mayor of Baltimore, a guy named Kurt Schmoke, from 1988 to 1999, he was the mayor of Baltimore. He actually considered decriminalizing drugs. And I think because of political pushback, you know, we're talking like in the 90s, which was the height of super predators and right. all that stuff. Yeah. Just couldn't get, there was no political will to do this. So it didn't go anywhere. But during 2020, the state's attorney's office put in like a temporary policy. You know, the state's attorney of Baltimore, a woman named Marilyn Mosby, they essentially put in a policy to decriminalize drugs, sex work, and other crimes, Mm -hmm. like, quote, minor crimes. Mm -hmm. The reason was because of COVID. Uh, They were trying to prevent the spread of COVID in Maryland jails. Yeah. But what they saw after 12 months of that policy was that Baltimore has seen a 20% decrease in violent crime. The murder rate has stayed about the same, but the overall violent crime rate has gone down. And then a 36% decrease in property crime. So it seems like maybe these super strict drug policies actually create more crime. And maybe I mean, dial I'm it back. shocked. <laughs> <laughs> so as of March of this year, they've decided to make this policy permanent. Oh, okay. So drugs, sex work, other minor crimes have essentially been decriminalized in Baltimore. Okay. And uh, we shall see how that plays out over time. We will be waiting with bated breath. Yeah. So that is the story of the plot spits open air drug market and the thorny issues around uh, the war on drugs and decriminalization. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel like just, it's, a, you know, a lot of solutions up to this point have been, you know, very dare war on drugs, like just don't do them. And it's like, you need to be looking yeah. at like, again, what are the, what are the circumstances that are leading to drug abuse? Cause I remember like, gosh, I'm sure it was the same for you, but I remember how much it was shoved down my throat that like oh, marijuana yeah. was a gateway drug and like, Oh, the gateway you know, drug thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like once you smoked, like like once you smoke the joint, you might as well be like, you know, snorting rails off, off like somebody's butt. Like it was all just like downhill from there. I mean, I'm just, I think about my reaction to that stuff at the time. Like, you know, we're talking the eighties and early nineties. I grew up in Los Alamos, which turns out Los Alamos has a pretty major drug problem. It sounds completely surprising. It's, it's not, if you know the culture of that town, the high pressure environment, Mm -hmm. like, and I definitely knew kids who were doing drugs, but like, I was hanging out with Mormons and stuff. Like I wasn't doing anything. I was never particularly drawn towards drugs, Mm -hmm. but I remember all the, all the just say no bullshit and all the dare bullshit at the time thinking it was real fucking stupid. And like the gateway drug argument never made sense to me because I was like, yeah, but like, how is marijuana a gateway drug, but alcohol isn't? Well, and I think I, yeah, it just seemed arbitrary. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is that again, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a downstream bandaid to something that is actually requires an upstream solution. Like the thing is, is that like, like I'm, 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 I'm not trying to be insensitive here, but like addicts are going to addict. You know what I mean? Like people who are prone to addiction and there's still research being done on that. And the story on that changes every day, whether that's like a nature or nurture thing. Combination of the two. Yeah. And like what plays a bigger role in it, but like addicts are going to find something to be addicted to. Right. And it doesn't like that's just the shitty hand of of addiction. I know addicts who mm-hmm. transfer their addiction to something else. Right. Um, well, and even, you know, I I've heard and and I again I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I've heard I've actually heard addicts make this case. Mm-hmm. Um the things like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, this is also transferring an addiction. Like you're, you're not curing yourself of the addiction, but your addiction becomes the program, the Mm -hmm. steps, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's a way of channeling it into something hopefully more healthy. Um, Yeah. And and there's definitely, there's definitely that school of thought that like, there is no cure for addiction. Right. Well, and I just maybe gets transferred to something that is like health. I I think there isn't because the fact of the matter is addiction is no matter what causes it, it's, it's a medical condition. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know yet how much of it is psychological, how much of it is genetic. I mean, yeah. it sure seems to be a strong genetic component. You know, it does run in families. Like, yeah. Um, you know, so that like you can't criminalize that. You know, so it seems like if I have a takeaway from doing this research, mm-hmm. is that the paper bag solution that mm-hmm. the wire depicts? And to be fair to the wire, like I said, it. it they depict it maybe with a little bit of naivete mm-hmm. the show, but they don't because the wire is a super good, smart show. Like mm-hmm. they don't show it as some sort of like utopic solution. Right. Like, they show that like, essentially it is a downstream solution. Right. Like, 
it, it, it's a frustrated cop who's like, this is the one tool I have in my toolbox. Right. Because no one else will fucking do anything. Yeah. But like that paper bag solution, which is essentially what they're trying to plot spits, that mm-hmm. doesn't work. You know, there may be some benefits to being able to provide, you know, clean needles and things like that, but that causes as many problems as it solves right strict drug enforcement criminalization doesn't work doesn't work it seems like if you look at what happened in switzerland once they went from super strict drug laws to this plot spits experiment to Mm -hmm. then being like why don't we move towards a treatment model Mm -hmm. treatment and support model that's what made the difference well and i mean it was in portugal yeah like it was in uh, the netherlands yeah, that like know. they're getting a thing of like, let's actually treat this stuff as opposed to like toss them in a right. cell and like, you know. Like decriminalization or legalization on its own is not going to be an answer. Mm. But it's a step in the right direction as long as part of that decriminalization approach mm-hmm. is social support. Yeah, but that's where things get tricky because nobody wants social support. Well, in this fucking country, like mm-hmm. that's, they made it work in Switzerland. They made it work in Portugal. And yeah, I understand these are smaller countries, less population, more homogenous populations, blah, 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 blah. I get right. it. I get it. I get it. But what we're doing doesn't fucking work. We need to try something else. Do you ever just think that maybe we should just not be a country anymore? I mean, <laughs> like, I've, I've maybe had we moments. should be. <laughs> Maybe we should be like the like American Union as opposed to like the United States of America and hot, New hot Mexico take. can <laughs> do what the fuck they're going to do and yeah. Texas can do what the fuck they're going to do and good hot luck take. guys. The United States is a failed state. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. god no but i mean but i think like until we pull our head out of our ass and stop with our macho bullshit of like right. you know, toughen up motherfucker kind of attitude mm. when it comes to these things you know mental health is the same thing mm-hmm. you know like until we learn to be a compassionate society which we're fucking not yeah um we're not going to solve this problem well, like and I mean, that's, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's, is it's like, you know, the issue right now, I think is that there are a lot of States that are doing a lot of heavy lifting for yeah. the country, which gives the States that are not doing the heavy lifting and that are actually sort of drains on resources, right. the false sense of like, we don't need to do that. And we don't need to become some type of socialist. And it's like you, because like freedom. Alabama, right. Like, like Alabama, you are getting California money. Right. So like you better be on board with what California is doing because you're getting a lot of their money. Yeah, but no, it's holly weird and blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. God bless. America, oh, get God your bless. shit together. Yeah. Ugh, awesome. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. 
Okay. You ready? Yeah. Fantastic. Scotty, let's talk about dark tourism. Let's. Let's talk about it. Okay. Uh, sources for this are Wikipedia, The Atlantic, a paper titled A Dark Tourism Spectrum Towards a Typology of Death and Macabre Related Tourist Sites, Attractions, and Exhibitions by Dr. Philip Stone. That was written in 2006. The Washington Post, Medium.com, CNN, Forbes, The Urban Surf Blog, and Lonely Planet. Okay. So right off the bat, what is dark tourism? Yeah. Um, it is tourism that involves traveling to places historically associated with death, the macabre and tragedy. Yeah. It is also sometimes known as thanatourism from the Greek thanatos, the personification of death, also known as black tourism, morbid tourism, or grief yep. tourism. Subcategories of dark tourism include Holocaust tourism, slavery, yep. heritage tourism, disaster tourism, genocide tourism, grave tourism, and more. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. There's a lot of articles <laughs> <laughs> written in the early almost of the early 200s, the early 2000s <laughs> um, <laughs> um, about dark tourism. And when these articles were, were coming out in, in the early 2000s, it was a lot of like, Dark tourism was seen as as like pretty gross. gross. Yeah. yeah, like it was very like, why are people doing this? That's fucking weird, and all that stuff. As time has gone on, there's a better understanding of dark tourism and the reasons behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, a little bit too, the way that people are like, why is everybody so interested in true crime right now? And what is this new fascination? And it's like, there is no new fascination with it. Yeah. So much like true crime, the fascination with dark tourism has been around kind of forever. Like as pretty much as long as people have been alive, I they've mean, like flocked to see like recent and ancient settings of death. I mean, um, you, you and I have indulged. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about that in here, but like, yeah. so there's that. And I'll get into that a little bit more later, but the term dark tourism and the sort of trying to understand it and like quantify it and codify it is relatively new. Yeah. So it seems like the term dark tourism was coined in 1996 by Lennon and Foley. They were two faculty members of the department. I just think this is interesting. The Department of Hospitality, Tourism and Leisure Management at <laughs> Glasgow Caledonian University. Like, of course, there's a department of hospitality, tourism and leisure management management but Imagine it's never if, if i was like hi i'm dr scotty milder oh a doctor of oncology no i'm a doctor of hospitality and uh tourism management yeah <laughs> like that's a th and i'm like I, that's kind of the thing that like i almost wish that i had known that that was a possible profession yeah because you know that doesn't that sounds pretty cool that sounds fucking fun yeah. Thanotourism, than, yeah, Thanatourism is first mentioned by A.V. Seaton in 1996 when he was a professor of tourism marketing at the University of Strathclyde. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, you know, we're talking about this stuff is like really starting to be examined in the late 90s. But I will just say here that people were going to the Colosseum in Rome. They were traveling to see public executions in London. They were like getting in their carriage and going to go watch the Battle of Waterloo. Like, it's not a new thing. Right. At all. So if you're out there and you're listening to this, 
just disavow yourself of that notion yeah. <laughs> as we go on this journey together. There has been a decent amount of study done since, you know, since these guys kind of coined these terms that is going into like the definitions and the subcategories of dark tourism, but mm-hmm. ju- it's just now starting to be investigated as to like why, like the perspective of a dark tourist and what draws yeah. them to these places. So like I said, like true crime, a lot of people have opinions in it. Also, I will say that most of the people who have pretty ungenerous opinions about dark tourists are people who are not dark tourists. You know what I mean? Like it's a pretty, it's very much like, I don't understand that. So it's bad. It's, it's the, it's the, it's my middle school math teacher who told my parents that I was going to become a serial killer because I read Stephen King. Yes. But again, just like people who are into true crime, like there's a huge range of reasons as to why someone might be intrigued by these places. Um, So the executive director of the Institute for Dark Tourism at the University of Central Lancashire, his name is Philip Stone. (laughs) um, He says, quote, we've just got this cultural fascination with the dark side of history. When we go to these places, we see not strangers, but often we see ourselves and perhaps what we might do in these circumstances. So that's Mm -hmm. very similar to sort of how I feel about my interest in true crime and also why I am a dark tourist. Yeah. Like I said, Stone has Stone has a pretty like generous attitude towards mm-hmm. dark tourists. Lennon and Foley, they wrote a book on this. And in the beginning, they were not. They're cool. not on board. They were yeah. not on board with it. Big old stick up their butt. <laughs> yeah. Their book says, quote, tact and taste do not prevail over economic considerations. Mm. The blame for transgressions cannot lie solely on the shoulders of the proprietors, but also upon those of the tourists, for without their demand, there would be no need to supply. That's real fucking judgy. It's it's real judgy. Later interviews with Lennon at least suggest that his view on dark tourists has like shifted a bit. Um, uh, This is another quote from Lennon where he says, these are important sites that tell us a lot about what it is to be human. I think they're important places for us to reflect on and try to better understand the evil that we're capable of. That was a quote from him in the Washington post article. That was two. And he said that in 2019. So clearly He's well, that reminds me of of something that my old journalism professor uh, said back when I was in college, where we Mm -hmm. were talking about, you know, sex and violence in media. And he was like, sex and violence are two of the biggest drivers of human behavior. Like, Mm -hmm. shouldn't these things be represented in art and journalism? You know, there's a way to do it where it's like not just gratuitous. Yeah. 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 I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a dear friend and mentor of mine uh, is known to be like the thing that is at the core of every play is the desire to fornicate and reproduce. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, you know him. It's not like you go to see his plays and you're like, oh, well, like this is like, why is all this sex inserted yeah, in there? Where'd all the fucking come from? Right. But it is, it's like, I mean, at the end of the day. Well, it's, we're driven by, I mean, I've talked about this with the horror stuff. We're driven a lot by like our lizard brain. 
Right. Yeah. So like I said, the early writings about dark tourism are pretty judgy. It's very much coming from a place of like what type of weirdo wants to see this shit. Um, I'm like raising my hand. Yeah, me too. Me, I want (laughs) to see it. Um, But as time is passing and more thought is going into like the dark tourism phenomenon, opinions are shifting, which Lenin, you know, I'm I'm glad that he was like, let me, let me 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 revise this. Yeah. Yeah. There are even now folks who are focusing on how kids experience dark tourism attractions and Mm. sites. Um, There's actually a joint program between the Institute for Dark Tourism Research and the University of Pittsburgh, a woman named Mary Margaret Kerr. She's the professor of education and psychiatry. She started, she's like heading this program because the National Park Service came to her and they were like, hey, can you put together a team and design children's materials for the families who come to visit the United Airlines Flight 93 Memorial in Pennsylvania. Mm, Yeah. And they were like, I mean, families are coming to this. Like we have to have something that is like at a child level. Right. So her research now includes middle schoolers who study how other middle schoolers interact with the national September 11th Pentagon Memorial Mm. or the site of the Jonestown flood, which I covered back in our engineering, blah, blah, blah episode. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is super cool that it's like middle schoolers researching other middle schoolers. Yeah. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Kerr says that the goal is to provide appropriate safeguards and ways to experience a site, even for kids too young to grasp the history so that families can be there together, but each member can take meaning that works for them at their age and stage, Mm -hmm. which is like really cool. Yeah. Okay. So I should have said this before. I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk, I'm going to first talk about the psychology of dark tourism Mm -hmm. uh, and all this stuff. And then we're going to get into like some of the more. Like the fun, the fun stuff. stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the dark tourism spectrum, Mm -hmm. uh, which I did not know about and was sort of fascinated to find out about. So in 2006, old Dr. Philip Stone, I don't know if he's old or not, but I mentioned him before um, from the University of Central Lancashire. He published this paper where he basically attempted to develop a scale of dark tourism sites. His hope was that it would lead to a better understanding of dark tourism supply, where to locate and explore dark tourism demand and like understanding dark tourist motives and experiences in order to more fully understand the dark tourism phenomenon. Mm-hmm. He's basically put dark tourism into like a chicken or the egg thing. He's trying to figure out if people go to these places because the sites exist as attractions or if the sites exist because people want to go to them. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about the driving reasons for dark tourism. Um, he says that they vary from like morbid curiosity to like malicious schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. to uh which is like an indulgence in another person's suffering to like a collective sense of identity or survival quote in the face of violent disruptions of collective life routines our pal av seaton argues that dark tourism has a long history that reaches back at least to the middle ages and that's like people being like they're hanging a guy in london this weekend let's go and see yeah yeah um <laughs> yeah and like that seems like the malicious schadenfreude part of the spectrum yeah 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 probably Probably. this next thing as well like knowing what we know about what happened at the coliseum Mm -hmm. like i think that qualifies 
Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is that it's interesting. Like imagine something like the Coliseum trying to exist now where it was like, Hey, we've gone to these places and we've kidnapped these people. And now one of them is going to fight a tiger. Yay. (laughs) Like people would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you on every level? Right. Like who raised you wrong? You know, like it wouldn't fly, but back then they were like, what fun. So that's what I mean when I'm like, I don't know that we can get super judgy about an interest in visiting these places from a historical standpoint when people used to do this stuff for fun. Right. Because I mean, just being a spectator at, you know, watching some Christians getting eaten by lions, like you are a dark tourist, you know, Yes, (laughs) that is the definition of malicious. Right. And is there a difference between people who went to go watch the gladiators battle in the Colosseum versus the people who go now to like visit the remains of the Colosseum and like learn Mm -hmm. about the history. Right. Like to me, there is a clear difference. Oh, absolutely. Between those people. Seton also says that dark tourism is the travel element to Thanatopsis, which is a contemplation of death. Mm -hmm. So it's travel to a place motivated by the desire for either actual or symbolic encounters with death, especially the violent kind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, AV says that there are five categories of dark travel activities. That is traveling to witness public enactments of death. There is almost nowhere where you can find that in the modern world that is stuff like the Colosseum, public executions, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Sites of genocide, sites of celebrity death, sites mm-hmm. of publicized murder or the home of murderers. So mm-hmm. that would include things like the Sharon Tate House, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Which Cecil I've Hotel. Driven by the Sharon Tate House more mm-hmm. than once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the Hanging Tree in Boston. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Then we've got travel to memorials. So that's cemeteries, crypts, war memorials, pilgrimages, uh, or even resting places of the infamous. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be like the September 11th memorial, the Hiroshima memorial, mm -hmm, stuff like that. And then there is uh, travel to see evidence of symbolic representations of death at unconnected sites. That's things like seeing weapons of death in like museums mm-hmm. or exhibitions that reconstruct events of the activities that it'd be something like the Jack the Ripper London dungeon right. thing, which I have done. And we'll talk a little bit more about. Well, I mean, that's even like Renfair in society creative anachronisms and stuff. Well, I'm trying to think about that because the next one is travel to reenactments or Mm. simulation of death. Now that used to be like plays and festivals that had a religious theme, but now it is more about reenactments by groups and societies. So stuff like civil war reenactments. And I, Mm -hmm. I think Ren fairs and stuff might fit in that. Okay. Yeah. And that would also be like, if you go to tombstone, they reenact the gunfight at the okay corral stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like very, like it is, it is, you're not seeing actual death. You're seeing like a reenactment. Right. Right. Um, Okay. So then let's talk about the actual dark spectrum. The Mm -hmm. dark travel spectrum goes darkest, darker, dark, lighter, lightest. Okay. Okay. Darkest is, (laughs) okay, I'm going to say all this and then I'm going to qualify it. Um, Darkest is defined as having higher political influence and ideology. They are sites of death and suffering. 
Mm-hmm. They are education oriented. They are history centric from like a conservation commemoration mm-hmm. standpoint. They have perceived authentic product, product here meaning victim. So Mm -hmm. they have perceived authentic product interpretation. They Mm -hmm. have location authenticity and they have a shorter time scale to the actual event and have lower tourism infrastructure. What Mm. I think that means is it's not like, it's not like you can get like, you know, like an Auschwitz magnet. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't have a gift shop, you know, or like a cafeteria or something. Yeah. Yeah. It would be because I was thinking like, obviously Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also what is the, the, the schoolhouse slash torture place in Cambodia, Uh huh. you know, places like that. Mm -hmm. So that's darkest. Yeah. Lightest is defined as having lower political influence and ideology. The sites are associated with death and suffering. It's more of an entertainment orientation versus education. They are heritage centric rather than history centric. Okay. They have a perceived inauthentic product interpretation. Hmm. They have non-location authenticity. So it's not actually in the place where the things happened. And there is a longer time scale from the event and a higher tourism infrastructure. So that would be like Universal Studios with the Jaws thing coming out at you. Yeah. Yeah. And again, would be like, I, I, I'm going to mention it a couple of times, but the Jack the Ripper London dungeon thing is very, I can't even say that it is, I saw it referred to as like Disney fied. I can't even say that it's Disney fied. It's like six flags fied. Like there's even a ride where you go like that you go like, I don't, you know. And like, when you think about it, you're like Jack the Ripper fucking killed people terribly. And it was, Mm -hmm. he was terrorizing Whitechapel in the late 1880s. And now there's a ride about it. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's how, like, if you go to Salem, I think I've talked about it. Like mm -hmm. it is the the fucking corniest place on earth. Right. And like, I'm going to talk about that later, but like the Salem witch trials were awful. They were terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So according to the scale visiting Auschwitz-Birkenau will be a darker experience than visiting the Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C. Right, right. Which because is that's not where it happened. And, right. But like, it's yeah. hard for now. I have not been to Auschwitz-Birkenau. I have been to the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Same. And it is hard for me to like my that's hard for my brain to process. Well, I, I can kind of understand because as as a Jewish person who had family mm-hmm. die in the Holocaust, like going to the Holocaust Museum was like a very profound yeah. experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it vividly, mm-hmm. but the idea of actually standing in the spot where the gas chambers were is like, yeah, I'm all about dark tourism. That's one I've never really decided that if I actually want to experience that. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. So Dr. Stone's paper also says that like, he says that that is because the Memorial Museum is associated with death while the camp is of death. Right. Right. Um, exactly. And exactly. like, yeah, that makes sense in my brain, but it's just like, Jesus, like yeah. fucking and, hell. And, and like, yeah, the Holocaust museum may be a lighter experience than going to Auschwitz, but take it from me. It is not a light experience. Right. 
he also talks about how like dark tourism sites must engender a degree of empathy between the sightseer and the past victims. So mm-hmm. it's he talks about how it's incredibly important that the like the how the product again meaning like the victims are perceived, produced, and consumed, mm-hmm. right? Time is also a huge factor in this. Mm-hmm. So according to this dark spectrum scale, and this is where stuff st- really for me starts to be like, wait, what is the September 11th memorial is perceived as being much darker than visiting Pompeii because it's been nearly 2000 years since Pompeii. Right, right. That makes sense. But- If you were to think about if the September 11th Memorial Museum was presented in the way that Pompeii is, Mm -hmm. where you were looking at essentially the bodies of the victims. That's true. Like that's where I start to be like, wait, what? How is Pompeii perceived as a lighter experience than the September 11th one? I mean, because it's like conceivable that we know people who experience September 11th. We don't know it. Like you're looking at these bodies, but they're 2000 years old and it's just easy to like abstract that in your mind. Right. You know? Right. So yeah, we could, there, there's also like, uh, there's something that's like seven subcategories of dark tourism suppliers. And that's mm-hmm. like dark fun factories, which is <laughs> like, like uh, Jack the Ripper London Dungeon or like Dracula's Castle in Romania. Mm, which isn't even Dracula's <laughs> Castle, but yeah. Right. Uh, where it is sort of like, woo, you know, like. Yeah. It, I mean, that's Salem. Yeah. Right. It's done with the a sense of like camp right. um you know again none of these things are things that are worthy of camp but i guess like time has allowed us to be like what fun Um, yeah. So there's that as well. Um, the paper that Dr. Stone wrote is only about 15 pages long. If anybody wants to go read it, it's easily like you can Google it. Uh, it's, 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 it's very interesting to get into, uh, all of the minutia about what he has to say about dark tourism, but Let's talk about now some of the most popular dark tourism sites Mm -hmm. and where we feel they land on the dark tourism spectrum. So our first is Chernobyl, Ukraine. This is obviously the site of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, which happened on April 26, 1986. Chernobyl is now a ghost town. Mm-hmm. Ukraine is encouraging Chernobyl to become a tourist site, but scientists are a little like, um, uh, maybe wait another thousand years. <laughs> yeah, like maybe <laughs> don't go there. Groups of tourists go to Pripyat, which is mm-hmm. like the, the city, city. Right. to like look around the deserted town and like snap selfies and do all that mm-hmm. stuff. The radioactive exclusion zone opened to visitors in 2011, but yeah. the spot has recently seen like a huge uptick in interest after the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. Yeah, which makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Dark tourists can hire a guide to take them. There's also aerial tours, which I don't think I have any interest in visiting Chernobyl. Oh, I do. Really? <laughs> I 100 that, That's actually, I've thought about this a lot over the years. That's like one of my bucket list places. Yeah. But, you know, I grew up in Los Alamos. Like, you know, I'm very right. fascinated by nuclear destruction. <laughs> yes. So like, yeah. Like, I've, yeah, I would 100% go to, I mean, I would, I would for sure do an aerial tour. I'd be nervous to go 
because of like radiation and stuff mm-hmm. i'd be nervous to go to the actual place mm-hmm. like on ground but it, i 100 would go there yeah i think if i was to do it i think the only way i would do it would be an aerial tour mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just fyi it is not advised that you visit chernobyl without a guide and proper equipment slash mm-hmm. attire yeah <laughs> fair Mm-hmm. Fukushima, Japan. I told the story, just FYI, we have covered a lot of dark tourism sites oh, yeah, of course on we this website or on this podcast. Some rather. of which we have visited. Yes, many of which we have visited. So Fukushima, Japan, I told the story of, of the tsunami that caused the Fukushima nuclear disaster in the Kennedy right. Solved episode. It is the site of the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. People now flock to Fukushima. They're like as disaster tourists, Mm -hmm. but the authorities are really trying to discourage disaster tourism. And they're like, no, come to Fukushima because like it's safe and interesting. And we've got like a rich history and there's like nature and beautiful sightseeing spots. I don't know how they're doing on that battle, Uh, but they're, they're trying Yeah. the national September 11th Memorial and museum. That Mm. is a site paying tribute and remembrance to the 2,977 people killed during the September 11th attacks and the six people killed in the World Trade Center bombing of 1993, which I did not know. Mm -hmm. I did not know that the memorial wrapped them up in there as well. I, I don't think I did either, but it makes sense to me. Yeah. The site has twin reflecting pools that occupy the footprints of the two towers bearing the name of every victim. And there's also a museum with exhibitions that has stuff like artifacts, images, first person testimony, historical context. I believe the watch of, um, I'm not remembering his name right now, but he was the, he was the let's roll guy on United flight 93, Mm -hmm. his watch. And his business card are in the museum. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. There is also um, like an, uh, oh, the the exhibit also provides like historical context and talks about the aftermath, not just like within the city of New York, but like globally, politically, what the mm-hmm. aftermath of September 11th was. There's also an in memoriam section, which honors each of the right. 2,977 victims. And again, the six from the 1993 bombing. It is described as a somber, but powerful reminder of the largest loss of life from a foreign attack on American soil. Just an FYI, tickets to the National September 11th Memorial Museum cost, I believe, $75. Mm, Mm -hmm. Auschwitz-Birkenau. This was the largest German Nazi concentration camp, and it is a global symbol for terror and genocide. Right. Over 1 million people lost their lives there. The Forbes article that I cited earlier says it, quote, acts as a vital reminder and tool of education to try and prevent such atrocities happening again. Mm -hmm. The museum says, quote, there is no way to understand post-war Europe and the world without an in-depth confrontation between our idea of mankind and the remains of Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. There is no fee to visit Auschwitz, but there are only like a limited number of tickets, which I think to me that it is a very smart thing to do. So it can't be like, oh, like it's the summer rush. Like they're like, you can come in and you can see this stuff 
and you can quietly contemplate it mm-hmm. to give this place like the right. the and weight that it deserves. Don't take a bunch of Instagram selfies like that one girl did. I was just about to get on that. <laughs> yeah. um, in March of 2019, the, Aus- the Auschwitz Memorial tweeted pictures of visitors posing on the train tracks outside the camp with the caption, remember, you were at the site where over 1 million people were killed. Mm-hmm. So we'll come back to that in a bit. The Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum. Mm-hmm. That is the site where an atomic bomb was dropped on August 6th, 1945. The memorial pays respect to the victims, perpetuates the memory of nuclear horrors, and advocates for world peace. It includes the A-bomb dome, which is the skeletal remains of the Hiroshima Prefectural Industrial Promotion Hall, which was closest to the hypocenter of the bomb, the Children's Peace Monument, and the Rest House, which was used as a fuel distribution center during the war. Um, Hiroshima is so Somewhere that I would like to go. And part of that is yeah. because I did a play about the child who is depicted in the Children's Peace Monument. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. So I would like to see it. So the whole thing with the Children's Peace Monument is that there was there was a young girl named uh, Sadako, Sadako Susaki. Mm-hmm. I believe was her name. And she was a, a baby, I think, when the bomb was dropped. And she survived, like, she survived. But when I think she was around 10 years old, she developed, I think, leukemia. She developed mm-hmm. cancer because of the radiation. Right. There is a Japanese myth or legend that says if you were able to fold a thousand cranes, the gods will grant you a wish. Mm-hmm. So she began to fold. Jesus, the story. She began to fold a thousand cranes um, and she was folding them out of like anything she could get her hands on. And then I think like the children at her school started to fold them. Mm-hmm. And then like everybody started to fold them. She died before she was able to reach a thousand cranes. Yeah. Um, and now the Children's Peace Memorial yeah. is a big arch with a girl standing uh, with her arms outstretched and she's holding a giant gold paper crane uh, as if she's like releasing it to the sky Uh, and people send paper cranes from all over the world. I have, uh, I don't know if they're still there because this was over 10 years ago now, but I have paper cranes at the the Children's Peace Monument. Okay. Then we have the Murambi Genocide Memorial. That's Rwanda. Oh, right. Okay. Uh huh. Forbes, the Forbes article that I read said this genocide memorial is probably the hardest to bear. Scotty, what do you know about the Rwandan genocide? Quite a bit. And it's fucking terrible. Like, it's awful. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's relatively, I mean, it was what, 94 or something like that? It was relatively recent. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give it to us in a nutshell? I mean, <laughs> oh. It's a hard one to do in a nutshell, but you know, there are two ethnic groups mm-hmm. that were kind of arbitrarily created from what I understand by like the Belgian colonizers, uh-huh. um, but the Hutus and the Tutsis in um, Rwanda. And for a long time, the Tutsis were like kind of the elite. And then that flipped at some point, the Hutus took political power but there was so much bad blood that between these ethnic groups mm-hmm. that eventually it just and there was a civil war mm-hmm. um going on and so it, it just escalated to the point where the essentially the hutu led government through propaganda through the radio station and the tv stations and everything basically just instigated a genocide against the tutsis and mm-hmm. and it was brutal because it was a lot of it was with like machetes 
mm-hmm. and things like that. It was neighbor killing neighbor. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was awful. And it was very controversial in this country because we didn't do anything about it. And the mm-hmm. UN was there and didn't do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. The French have some questions to answer about that as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. The French, the Belgians. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. And and I mean, they're still dealing with the repercussions of it. Yeah. So the memorial sits on the site of an unfinished technical college where an estimated 50,000 Tutsi men, women, and children were massacred by the Hutu militia mm. in April of 1994. Yeah. The memorial was founded just a year later in April of 1995. And the school building is now the genocide memorial. So this is a weird thing. The victims of the massacre were essentially buried in these giant mass graves. And my understanding of it is that afterwards, the mass graves were uncovered and then the bodies were put in lye, I -hmm. think. So somewhat similarly to Pompeii, you have these like figures um, and they are, they're like mummified. Yeah. And they are on display. Yeah. Yeah, um, that would be that would be tough to take. Yeah. It also I've seen I've seen pictures. If you are like super interested, you can go and look them up. I will not post them on social media, but yeah. um it is rooms of this like technical college and it's just like a series of clotheslines that are just filled with like the blood soaked clothing of victims. Mm-hmm. It I mean it is a confrontational memorial Which like it it, 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 is, it is aggressive yeah uh it's it's an aggressive memorial i think that's um, the way the cambodian one is too i don't know if you're gonna mention it but mm-hmm. alcatraz <laughs> Yeah, which is one of my favorite places I've ever visited. Which is interesting because when, like, I was reading about it, Alcatraz showed up on every single list of like mm-hmm. dark tourism places, and I was like, really? And then when I started to like read it, I was like, it's, oh yeah, it makes sense. Once you once you learn about Alcatraz, yeah, 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 yeah. that makes sense. So Alcatraz is the former maximum security federal penitentiary. It was in operation for 29 years. It housed everyone from Al Capone to Machine Gun Kelly. It is in the San Francisco Bay. It is about a mile and a quarter off the coast of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the movie with Clint Eastwood? Was he an escape from Alcatraz? Is that what the movie's called? I thought it was. Well, no, there's the, it, there's the Birdman of Alcatraz, but that's like Burt Link. I'm talking right. about the one when they like do the thing and they like make the floaty and, and it was like, they were never seen again. I think that's escape. I, or are you thinking of the rock with Sean Connery? No, I'm definitely okay. not. <laughs> thinking of rock. Um, it tells the story of the three people who escaped. From I think Alcatraz. that's escape from Alcatraz. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they like build little dummies to put in their beds and then they have. Yeah, they, I'm pretty sure that's sewed, escape from Alcatraz. They sewed something together to create a flotation device. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is right, like the it's only a mile and a quarter, but those are not like kind waters. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it and like the movie, I just remember the movie ends with a title card that it was like they were never seen again. And I was like, yeah. And I think I think the general consensus is they were shark bait. But, yeah. yeah. Um, so Alcatraz has a complex history. Sure does. Especially if you were even like slightly anti-industrial prison complex. Mm-hmm. Tours of the prison let you see how hard conditions were for the prisoners. Yep. Um, there are a lot of former prisoners of Alcatraz who were like the hardest thing about being in Alcatraz was being 
a mile and a quarter off the coast of San Francisco yeah. and being able to like watch people go about their daily lives while we were like forgotten. Yeah, it's like rock. I've got to imagine that's almost like water torture, you know, like Yeah, I mean it's not a kind. Uh it's definitely no. not like a kind thing. And that gets us into the question of like should prison be kind? And then it's like, well, I, fuck, I don't know. Um yeah. Well, just for me like just fascinated with organized crime and the mafia and stuff just mm-hmm. the al capone connection was enough yeah. for me to be like yeah I, I just remember like this is al capone's cell and me being like like so excited as like a 15 year old or whatever yeah i did the boat tour around alcatraz but did not actually go mm-hmm. into the thing the ruins of pompeii this is where in 79 ad mount vesuvius blew the fuck up yeah <laughs> and completely wiped out the roman village of pompeii italy the eruption is said to have been many thousands of times more powerful than the hiroshima a-bomb mm-hmm. the i mean village... i think i talked about it in our first episode when i was mm-hmm. going through the volcanic explosivity index yes i don't remember where it fell I don't remember either, but you can head back to our very first episode (laughs) and uh, listen for that. Uh, Right now would be a wonderful time for you to just do a binge of all of the episodes of the Weirdest (laughs) Thing podcast. The village was buried under 13 to 20 feet of volcanic ash and pumice Mm -hmm. and any and all organic remains were entombed in the ash. That includes like everything from wood to human bodies. Yeah. Leaving sort of like fascinating and gruesome figures of people in their last moments. That's the interesting thing to me about it is that like what you see when you see the figures from Pompeii, it's, it's not just like, oh, this was a body that was dead that was laid on a table. I mean, it's like people like, you know, with their arms up, like protecting themselves. It's like fetal positions. Yeah. People like falling it, it they're they're not like in passive position they're in they're actually in like motion yeah yeah i mean i i like i'm i'm fascinated by pompeii and i'm not saying that i wouldn't go but i'm like how the fuck can anybody be like that's not that dark it's yeah. dark as hell oh i i would that's another bucket list one for yeah me. oh like figures of like women cradling their children like fuck mm-hmm. yeah. um it's like many of these it is a unesco world heritage site and this year actually marks like we are uh we are actually coming up on it because they think it took place in october this year marks the 1942nd anniversary of the eruption Mm, okay. The Killing Fields, Cambodia. Yeah, that's kind of what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is uh, about 10 miles south of the Cambodian capital of Phnom Penh. Scotty, what do you know about the Killing Fields? Uh, the Killing Fields themselves, I'm not sure I know that much. Uh, I do know just like, you know, the Khmer Rouge mm-hmm. were, it's like, I mean, they were communist, I guess. But it's like, it's like, just imagine an entire country going insane. Like, yeah. Like they were communists to the point of like, you know, anti-intellectual, you know, because they saw intellectualism as bourgeoisie. So it was literally killing people with glasses because they thought you were like too intellectual. And of course they like killed all the doctors, killed all Mm -hmm. the teachers, killed all Mm -hmm. the engineers, tried to turn it into this massively collectivist agrarian society Mm-hmm. And I think it was like a country of like 3 million people or 5 million people and 1 million people were killed. Yeah. I did not write this down. When did this take place? This was right around the time of the Vietnam War and kind okay. of right after the Vietnam okay. War. Okay. 
So mid seventies. Yeah. So like Scotty said, it is, sorry. (laughs) My TV started (laughs) making sense. (laughs) Don't you turn the TV off? No, I had it on like a, one of those, like, you know, like soothed by nature YouTube channels where it was just like a, like a fire and a rainstorm um, just to give her a little bit of something more to listen to, but it is now switched over to a like Christmas scene. Please give me one second. Okay. We're just going to pause that because it's like playing Christmas carols. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not appropriate when we're talking about stone fields. Oh geez. Not appropriate. Okay. So it is the site of the murder of around 17,000 adults and children. Mm -hmm. Um, Pol Pot, right. That was the dude basically was like, kill them and don't waste any bullets. Right. So it's not like these people were like, humanely executed. No. In 1980, the mass graves were exhumed and a lot of the skulls are now on display to show the brutal way that they were killed. Again, this yeah. is like this is definitely not in the lighter lightest portion no. of of the dark tourism spectrum. So, before we move on, where would you put these places on the dark tourism spectrum? Well, like, obviously, you know, Auschwitz-Birkenau, that's pretty far down towards the dark. The Killing Fields is, uh, I, the the Rwanda, those are, like, as dark as it gets. Yeah. I would say Alcatraz is much more towards the lighter side. Maybe that's, like, dark. Right. But not darkest or darker. Right. And even, like, the Hiroshima Memorial and the September 11th Memorial, those sound a little more, like, dark but not darkest. It does mm-hmm. seem like Pompeii is, like you said, it's a weird one because mm-hmm. it's sort it, of feels less dark because it's so long ago. But then as mm-hmm. you describe it, it's like, that's pretty fucking dark. Yeah, that's that's the weird thing about it is that it's like it's sort of universally viewed as like living in the lighter end of the spectrum. But I'm like, how? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> look at the pictures. Yeah, I think it's, it's I think it's just because it was so long ago. Yeah, I think, and I think that's the thing is that it's just like, well, it's like really far away. Right. You know, and like, yeah, we don't know anybody. Feels like ancient history. Mm -hmm. And I think additionally, like, you know, this is something that would be like, I think what's interesting about this is that the dark tourism spectrum, I think is also deeply personal because you are going to find people that are going to be like, no, the September 11th Memorial is as dark as Auschwitz-Birkenau. Right. Well, certainly someone who like lost a family member there. People who were in New York at the time. You know what I mean? And you're going to find people that are like, I'm sorry, I don't think Alcatraz is dark at all. Yeah. Like as a jail for bad people. These are not the views of the weirdest thing (laughs) podcast. podcast. Right. (laughs) I'm just saying that like, I can imagine that there are people that are going to be like, no, I'm glad Alcatraz existed. Um, But yeah, I think we can all, I think, I think at least Scotty and I, you can agree that the killing feels the, uh, Rwanda, Rwanda, Auschwitz-Birkenau and that, but that's the interesting thing to me is that like, for me, I know Chernobyl was bad, but Chernobyl and Fukushima, for whatever reason, maybe because Fukushima and Chernobyl were things that it wasn't like the nastiest bits of humanity that caused these, they're They're sites of natural, yeah, they're accidents, they're natural disasters. Same with Pompeii, right? Yeah. So maybe that has something to do with it too, right? That it's like, this was just shit luck, bad yeah. weather, I mean, mother nature. Fukushima, 
to me feels darker than Chernobyl only because it's more recent. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, I think more, I think Chernobyl was technically worse than Fukushima. But it was. Yeah. But, you know, but again, like you said, that's personal. Yeah. You know? And that's, you know, I'm not like, it's so weird because I'm not sitting there being like, so like Chernobyl was no big deal. Like I'm aware of but it doesn't, how awful it was. It doesn't hit your, even the feels quite the same way. Yeah. And I think again, because it's not like, oh, this was a group of people who chose to do this to another group well, of people. And like, you know, and like you said, and again, this is the, per- you know, because I would say I fall on a lot of the dark tourism type stuff that mm-hmm. I've done. Mm-hmm. mostly pretty solidly in the morbid curiosity part of the spectrum like Same. but there are experiences like you know going to the holocaust museum was not morbid curiosity like right. I mean, that was a profoundly emotional experience for mm-hmm. me and like i don't think going to auschwitz would feel like morbid curiosity i don't feel like going to the killing fields or going to rwanda would either those like that engages a different i'm interested but it engages a more like empathetic right part and of I... my thought process mm-hmm. whereas like you know a a lot of the places I go, it's just like, oh, some fucked up shit happened here. And I'm just fascinated because that's who I am. You know? Right. Yeah. I think I fall into either the morbid curiosity or the thing of like sort of the contemplation of death. Right. Like Auschwitz is contemplation of death. Yeah. You know? And like the terrors that mankind is capable of, which is why it is so like, you know, when I saw the stories, when I, cause I saw the tweet that Auschwitz Birkenau had been like, um, you know, Hey, don't like do this. Yeah. I was like, what would possess you to take pictures like that there? Well, that's just like dumbness and insensitivity and not understanding because i don't even think that's like the malicious schadenfreude i think it's just a like you have your head up your ass yeah i think so too (laughs) i think so too And and i have to say like as dark as i am when i think about like my interest in these dark tourism type sites i don't i don't think i can think of one that feels like a, oh this is a malicious schadenfreude like i don't feel like that's right. a, like i'm not coming at it from that perspective i am definitely coming at it from morbid curiosity for a lot of it right uh okay so let's talk about some other ones cool the sixth floor museum at dealey plaza Ooh, yeah Mm-hmm. This is museum at the site of the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. So interesting thing about this in the like ca- the seven subcategories of dark tourism suppliers, shrines was was one of them. Dark shrines. So mm-hmm. this is the one of the examples they gave was Ground Zero on after September 11th that people started putting things out there and it sort of immediately sure. became the shrine. And then from that they were like, we need to build like we need to build a memorial. We can't right. put up another sky scraper here like this needs to be sort of hollowed ground um i mean i would say like oklahoma city oklahoma city the gates of kensington palace after princess Mm -hmm. diana died became a dark shrine yeah and it's interesting because they will occasionally go on to become actual like legitimate memorials like in the case of the september 11th memorial but it's also possible that they will just sort of fade with time like the way the gates of kensington palace did Mm -hmm. um i mentioned that because within hours of kennedy being assassinated 
in Dealey Plaza, grief-stricken citizens started showing up, you know, bringing flowers and mementos Mm -hmm. uh, and all that stuff. And these were the first steps in transforming the area into an unofficial memorial site. It is now known as an internationally recognized murder site. I have been Mm -hmm. to Dealey Plaza because I, that, that was morbid curiosity. It is eerie. Mm -hmm. There are X's on the road. Mm -hmm. to mark where the shots, you know, made contact. And yeah, like, you know, you can go up to the sixth floor window of book depository. Like that is, that is where the museum is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I would 100% go there. Yeah. My older brother, when he was living in Dallas was like, do you guys want to go see Dealey Plaza? And I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. My parents and my and and again, it's different for me because I did not live through the Kennedy assassination, so I don't know. I have no yeah. reference. Yeah, that doesn't feel like a sort of somber contemplation of death response for me. That mm-hmm. seems more like sort of curiosity and be- yeah. yeah, because I don't have that emotional connection to Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Salem, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, again, site of the Salem witch trials between 1692 and 1693. You know, we've talked before during the uh i'm not remembering oh trigger warning that was the name of the episode (laughs) oops trigger warning was the name of the episode (laughs) we talked about that on and we've talked about it here about how salem like it's the town now is kind of campy but like the shit that happened in salem was effed yeah it's fucked up and that's why like there is actually something about salem that i found almost offensive because like they have a statue of like the mom from sabrina the teenage witch somewhere in town like you know and it's like you motherfuckers murdered a bunch of women for Mm -hmm. no damn reason and then now you're me like there's something about like and i i understand these aren't the same motherfuckers who did it you know right but not even the descendants but it's just like like there's something about it that feels fucking gross Mm, yeah like i said it feels very much like roswell to me Mm. except roswell's just like a fucking dead alien you know right which is still like or a weather (laughs) dummy whatever you want to believe right Uh, like salem's different and it shouldn't be it should be treated with like a modicum of respect right you know um the titanic experience in cobb ireland Mm. i don't know if you have done this this is honestly one of the darkest fucking things I have ever done. I, yeah, like I did it when I went on a trip to Ireland with my brother and sister-in-law and we got done and we were all a little like, we did not expect that to be Mm -hmm. that fucking dark. Well, Um, none of the people know like, or remember how terrible the Titanic was. Well, if you didn't, the Titanic experience in Cobb Ireland tells you. So first of all, when you arrive, you are given a ticket with a name. And Mm -hmm. as you like go through the thing, like looking at all this stuff and like, you can look at like first class versus third class accommodations and you learn the history of the Titanic and you Mm -hmm. know, who was on there and all that stuff. And then at the end you find out whether or not you lived. 
it's I dark. Mean, is it done campy or is it? No, done... okay, no, well, that's it's, good. It's not. It's done like very respectfully, but it's not just like, you know, hey, here's the Titanic and here's some history about it. It, it very like, much they're making you almost live through it. Oh, they do. Because then at the end, how the end of the exhibit goes is you find out whether or not you survived or not. And then you go into this room that is freezing and you sit in a lifeboat and you watch the Titanic sink. You watch like the last 12 minutes of it. Jesus. And the thing about it is, is that you're sitting there and it's like the boat is sinking, right? And it's like doing the slow tilt. And then at a certain point, it does the thing where it like goes vertical, you know, where it goes vertical and people are screaming. Like it puts you in as if you are in a lifeboat watching the Titanic sink. Okay. This is the thing too, (coughs) is that it's done. Like I said, you sit in like a wooden lifeboat, the room is cold Mm -hmm. and it's all done. Like, you know, like you're watching sort of like an IMAX type screen. So like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like it's not like a movie theater. So it's not like there are lighting instruments. I think it might be like a simulated starry sky. Mm -hmm. But so you sit there, you watch the Titanic go vertical, you watch it break, you are hearing people screaming. Yeah. First part sinks, second part sinks, and then it goes dark. So you're sitting there with like just the light of like the stars Mm -hmm. and it's just quiet. Mm -hmm. And then you start to hear the people calling for help. Oh, that's really eerie as fuck. It was eerie as hell and like really truly the three of us left and we were all like we did not expect that and it was done incredibly well but it was another thing that was like hey this isn't the fucking james cameron rose dawson leonardo dicaprio kate winslet thing like like this is what it was it was awful and it was a it was like an utter tragedy yeah. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think I, yeah, I feel like the Titanic experience in Cobb Island was, was pretty dang dark. Yeah. Now we're going to talk a little bit about a few like unofficial or unsanctioned or just like in pop culture sort of in the collective pop Places. culture sensibility. Yeah. Dark tourism sites. The first is the, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, Aokigahara Suicide Forest in Japan. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not sanctioned. It's not like you can get tours of this place. You don't like. I think they, they're try, they, they try to keep people out of there. I think. They are, yeah, definitely not trying to do anything to encourage people to like go and look at the suicide forest. This is again in Japan. It is referred to as the most popular um, suicide site in Japan. Mm-hmm. In 2003, 105 bodies were found in the forest yeah it is a little unclear why to me at least why so many well, people go to this forest to to to, to end I their mean, lives I, I think my theory is it's like we, we talked about it a bit last week or last episode is it's like the golden gate bridge it's like once something becomes known then it just it becomes a magnet you know mm-hmm. yeah um, it yeah. kind of becomes self-perpetuating in a way. Yeah. The forest officials have now placed signage at the forest entrance, urging suicidal visitors to seek help. So they're actively like trying to be like, right. please well, don't and then do there this. Was that fucking douchebag Instagram guy. I can't remember his name. Who Wasn't like, it Logan Paul? I, I think so. Right. Who, wasn't it? 
I think so. Who like videotaped a like filmed the body he there was and then in just there posted and- it on Instagram. Yeah, he was in there and he was like, whoa, blah, blah, blah. and this it's like is fucking crazy. Dude. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, at what point did you think to yourself, I should do this? Right. Well, it's like the girl taking the selfie at Auschwitz. It's just like head solidly up, ass. solidly up ass. I think it has Logan Paul, the Black Dahlia discovery site, <laughs> which, which we, we you and I went to. to. Yep. Right. But like, this is the interesting thing is that it's because I was like, yeah, I want to see, I want to see where it was, but we weren't like hopping out of the car and taking pictures. One, it is now a neighborhood. And it's literally like, like someone's front fucking yard. Yeah. And like, I'm not trying to be a dick to somebody. I already feel like that would have some weird like energy, Right. Um, but it was, it was the vacant lot in, how do you say that? Lemert park. Lemert Park. Uh-huh. Los Angeles. That is where the mutilated body of Elizabeth Short was found on January 15th, 1947. It's just a, if you are unfamiliar with the Black Dahlia story, like it is just a God awful story uh, yeah. from top to bottom. But yeah, like it is, yeah, it is now like the sidewalk in front of somebody's home. Right. Um, I mean, LA is fucking filled with these. Yeah. I mean, there's the murder house, which I talked yeah. about. And wait, 52. hold on. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> don't take, don't hijack my story. Um, <laughs> uh, the Cecil hotel, yep. famous hotel in downtown Los Angeles. That is the, um, which is oddly, I guess the site of several suicides, murders, and deaths. It was also the one time home of serial killer, Richard Ramirez, also known yep. as the night stalker and the site of the death of Eliza lamb. Eliza, Eliza. I think it's Eliza. I'm not I sure. I think so too. We talked about the documentary on. Yes. On here. Yeah. And it, you know, I, I, I like her death was the subject of many like theories and conspiracies. I think that was, I don't think that there is anything there. I think it was just a tragic end to somebody who was very ill. Very Yes. Yeah. But I also made Scotty drive me by the Cecil hotel for sure. Uh huh. And again, it wasn't to be like all, Ooh, blah, blah, blah. it's more than anything. It is a bit of that thing where it's like, it is somewhat like looking at the pictures of Nazis when they're like relaxing on the weekends Right. Where it is like, how, like, how is it possible that I can be looking at the front yard of this home where this like horrible thing happened? Or yeah. Like, how can, is it possible that I can be looking at this ho- hotel where like these horrible things happened? Right. Or how can these people in this picture be, you know, when they're at work committing these like crimes against humanity? It's like my brain is trying to connect the dots and look for some evidence yeah. of evil right. in these places. The Lizzie Borden house Mm -hmm. falls river, Massachusetts. Now there is actually a museum at the Lizzie Borden house, but again, I mean, Lizzie Borden, if you, Mm. if you believe what the story is, Lizzie Borden massacred her father and stepmother, Andrew and Abby Borden Mm -hmm. on August 4th, 1892. And now it's like a little museum. Yeah. Like you can go there and like, look around and like, you know, see the couch. I mean, that, that was one of those, when I lived in Boston, my regrets is I never made it there because mm. people talked about it, you know? Yeah. There's just enough outside of the city that I didn't have a car. So yeah. Oh yeah. 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 The Sharon Tate house mm-hmm. site of the brutal slaying of Sharon Tate, J Sebring. I cannot say this person's name. Is it Wojciech Frykowski? 
Wojciech Frykowski, yeah. Okay. And Abigail Folger by members mm-hmm. of the Manson family cult. That is a, a much like the uh, Black Dahlia Discovery site. Like it is a home. Yeah. It exists. You, you can't also, get you close can't, to it. Yeah, you can't see it. You see the driveway. Did right. I take you to the Charente house? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it closed? Is the driveway closed? Yeah, it's gated. Yeah. Oh, uh, is the house still there? It's been, I think, completely redone. Like my okay. understanding is it doesn't look anything like it did. And I don't know if they like tore it down and rebuilt it or just completely remodeled it, but I think it's like not the same. Okay. I feel like I'd have to, I don't think that's something that I could be like, let's strip it down to the studs and redo it. I think that's something that'd be like, raise it. Raise it, seed the ground with salt. <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah. Oof. Oof. The Dakota, the apartment yeah. building where musician yeah, John Lennon lived and where on December 8th, 1980, he was shot in the back by Mark David Chapman. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where the Imagine, right? That's Strawberry Fields or whatever. I don't know where that is, but that's another like dark shrine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Dakota is still there right yeah it's also uh, a little bit of movie trivia it's also the location mm-hmm. and site of rosemary's baby yep and the los Feliz murder mansion which yep. scotty talked about this location in our monster machine episode yeah and that is a place where like i mean if you wanted to be a dick you could walk up there and look in the right. windows yeah well i don't know that you can now right. well, i mean you can you like you'll get arrested but like i might be i don't think it's occupied now but like they're it's they're redoing it they're yeah kind of remodeling it but like i drove you by it and it's Mm -hmm. like it's a mansion but it's like in this little cul-de-sac and you're just like right there you're just like looking up this yard up at it yeah and for a lot of these places with the exception of let me make sure that i'm not lying here with the exception of the lizzie borden house these are there is no like you have to know what you're looking for right well like one place i didn't take you Mm-hmm. Um, we just didn't have time. I wasn't sure if you were that that interested. But you can go to the fucking Bank of America where the North Hollywood shootout took place. Oh, right. And I've been there. Yeah. And it's and- just like it's a fucking Bank of America. Like apparently they say that like there's palm trees lining. I think it I think it's Van Nuys Boulevard, but mm-hmm. I could be wrong. But there's palm trees lining the road, and apparently if you look, you can find bullet holes in the palm trees. I looked for sure. I did not find any bullet holes. Mm-hmm. The is it the San Ysidro McDonald's? Yeah, that's down by San Diego. Mm-hmm. Where I'm not remembering his name, but a guy went in there and I just massacred a bunch of people, but I believe the McDonald's was torn down and there is now a memorial there. I think, I think that's right. Um, but yeah, the, most of these places that I'm talking about, like if you didn't know what had happened in these places, you wouldn't know it. Right. There's I no think, plaque think, commemorating it or anything. I think like the Dahmer apartment is one, although uh-huh. that may have been torn down at this point. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that was like a big dark tourism. Yeah. Site. Uh, when we went to, I went to Cuba in 2015 and we went to, basically it was like the presidential home and Cubans are interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this is something that is necessarily like all Latin Americans or like, fuck yeah, check this out. Uh, There does seem to be an element of dark tourism that sort of, you know, we lean into um, Mm -hmm. 
But in the presidential like palace, a coup was attempted to oust President Bautista, who was a real son of a bitch. If you don't know anything yeah. about Cuba, uh, about Cuba's history, please go learn about it. But um, and like you know, they're very they're very proudly like here are the bullet holes yeah. where the resistance, you know. Well, and but- I was sitting there like, oh my fucking god, like. Yeah, I mean that's the way. Like I, I've told you about the the bus ride I took up to Loch Ness in mm, Scotland, mm-hmm. and literally every site that the tour guide would point to out the window was like, "Here's where some terrible massacre happened." Or, it's like we went by the site of the Glencoe massacre. We went by the inn where Burke and Hare were murdering people. You mm. know, it was literally everything, and the and the tour guide was just telling us the stories with so much relish yeah well i think too about i didn't talk about it in this but the tower of london oh yeah london does not have like a nice it's not just like a little like oh a little like fortress like read richard the third if you (laughs) yeah i mean you can see where anne boleyn was beheaded right right like that's dark but people go to the tower of london all the time without any kind of like um yeah without any kind of judgment Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to talk about tips to ethically visit dark right. tourism sites. So first and foremost, remembering that you are visiting the places where someone died. And in some mm-hmm. cases where like thousands or even millions of people died, mm-hmm. um, skip the selfies yep. <laughs> <laughs> and some places it's even like photos of any kind, like mm-hmm. in Auschwitz, they're like really don't know if you should uh, yeah. be taking I, I wouldn't take photos of that at all like i said there's i do that- have my which we posted my heroic selfie at the site of the saint francis dam disaster right but again that's like a natural disaster so yeah. it feels a little different it feels a little me. different yeah but like you don't want to be like you know snapping a, like a duck fakes picture at fucking auschwitz birkenau like i can't yeah. believe we have to say this yeah um yeah there are people who who think that the taking of like any pictures at a place like Auschwitz is, is pretty tasteless. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do decide to take pictures, many say a sort of rule of thumb is to record these moments in a way that does not center yourself. Yeah. I mean, if I were to go to Auschwitz and take pictures, I, I, I would take pictures of the sites, but I would not include myself. And I don't think I would post them. Yeah. Like I, I might take them for my own reasons, but like, I, it's not something I need to put on social media. Yeah. I, I would put a lot of dark tourism shit on social media. Like I'm not proud, but like, that's one I would probably skip. Yeah. Yeah. Strongly consider hiring guides, like local guides when possible and when available respect signage and Mm -hmm. paths at these sites. And that's just sort of a general rule for tourism. Like don't go trampling over ruins. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, don't, don't go like traipsing through fields. Like don't go traipsing through the fucking killing fields. Right. You know, like stick to, stick to the paths, do all that. Don't hop over barriers to get, you know, that fucking shot for Instagram. Watch where you're walking. Right. Uh, That kind of stuff. Try to talk to locals. Like, especially when we're talking about things like Fukushima, Mm-hmm. Um, natural disaster sites, stuff like that. Like try to talk to locals and get like, especially when we're talking about visiting a country or a state that is not your own and right. like get an idea of the place beyond just the macabre. Right. Do some research on the site mm-hmm. before you visit it. Give your full attention to the displays. Be attentive to what you're seeing and experiencing. Like don't go to the 
Rwandan genocide memorial and like be playing Candy Crush on your phone. Right. I'm scolding people who haven't even done anything yet, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, don't touch or sit on gravestones at cemeteries. This actually comes from the Lonely Planet article that I stated above had a whole thing about how to ethically visit. Lonely Planet and Washington Post had articles about how to ethically visit dark tourism sites. And that one actually comes from the people at Sleepy Hollow. Mm, Interesting. Like they were like, we welcome this. We know that this is a big tourist draw. It is a cemetery. Yeah. Like don't sit on the gravestones. Don't touch them. The reason for that is because the oil on your fingers can erode the surfaces of the stones. Mm-hmm. They're even really like trying to kind of curb the rubbers. Yeah. Just because it's like, they're not going to be there for everybody. And do you yeah. really like, do you need it? Do you need it? Yeah. One of the things that the woman who, uh, I, I don't know if she's like the Sleepy Hollow like tourism site or whatever, but she, like they do tours of the cemetery and they even do ones that like start at 10 PM. They're, you know, they're understanding of the draw of Sleepy Hollow. But she said that she's gotten calls from shows that want to basically do ghost hunting. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, yeah, that's not what we're doing here. Yeah. Basically the moral of the story is like, don't be a dick. Right. And, you know, imagine how you would like people to act at the gravesite of a loved one mm-hmm. when visiting dark tourist attractions. Right. Um, and that's that's my story on dark tourism. Yeah. I mean, and that's interesting. And like when it comes to like like the whole don't be a dick thing, like mm-hmm. you know, because like a lot of the places I some of my favorite places to visit are the kind of unsanctioned sites where like you kind of have to look for them and there's no memorial you know it's like I said the North Hollywood shootout location yeah you know you you have to like know to find it and look up the address and like it's just a bank like there's nothing there yeah I I always like finding the weird little tucked away thing Mm -hmm. you know like when I lived in Boston, I wandered around South Boston a couple times, wandering by places that I know Whitey Bulger had killed people, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, in doing that, I sort of was like, yeah, I'm going to, like, not take pictures. I'm, you know, there was a big part of me, you know, in South Boston, was like, I don't want to get my ass kicked. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want people to come out and, like, fucking beat me up. So, like, right. you know, just common like a lot of it's just common sense yeah and i think it's i think you know that it's the kind of thing of like again if you are the type of person who i i was reminded of um you know from the last episode when i was talking about the falling man photo and mm-hmm. how people were like i don't want to see this and you know my kids could see this when they're eating their cornflakes and that uh the photographer was like this type of stuff is in newspapers and on the news every day it's just that it's not americans right so if you are that kind of person i want you to imagine how you would feel if somebody was acting that way at the site of a tragedy in your hometown your home country right. like no one is exempt from that These are a lot of these things, like I said, are sites where there were massive losses of life, whether by natural disaster or just the evil of mankind and just, Just you know, yeah, like those lives matter. (laughs) Yeah. Regardless. Even Um, if, even if you are like me coming from a place of morbid curiosity, don't let that overrule your like 
sense of being a human being. You know? Right. I mean, a bit of the way that you have to think about it is like going back to this, there is something in human brains, like in human nature, where we just inherently want to see that stuff. It's why we slow down and look at car crashes. Right. It's why, you know, we watch the videos of the September 11th attacks over and over again. It's, you know, we it, like, I don't even remember right. how old I was when I watched the Zapruder film for the first time. Like there is something innately within us that is like drawn to mm -hmm. that type of stuff and that's okay but, but don't use your witnessing of that to get like internet clout right well and it's like the car crash example is a good one because it's like you wouldn't you might slow down and look at the car crash but like you wouldn't stop and take a selfie at the site of like an actual active car accident no you know? and remember so yeah, remember how, I mean, when Princess Diana died mm -hmm. in that car crash, they were dealing with the paparazzi that were like trying to take pictures of her body. Yeah, and like, don't be that guy. Yeah, like, and universally, people were like, nobody wants to fucking see that shit. Right. Like, so it doesn't, like, you're like, don't be a ghoul. So just carry <laughs> that forward when you're at Auschwitz or, you know, yeah. and I know that there are sites like, the September 11th Memorial or the Pearl Harbor Memorial that are probably more, I don't know, it's like sanctioned to take photographs. But even then, like maybe think twice about the duck face selfie, you know? like Right. Well, um, and that's, that's an interesting thing too, right? Because we were talking about sort of like the tourism infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with some of these things. And like, that is the interesting thing to me about the September 11th Memorial is like you 100% can buy merchandise. Yeah. Like well, and there, I, are, and I, there are the hats that, you know, there are like the never forget hats and pins and and i mean i'd probably buy a coffee mug i mean sometimes i think the way i think about it maybe this is just justification but like some of these sites it's like the reason they're able to operate as a memorial is mm -hmm. you know the revenue comes from like the gift shops and stuff so you're you're sort of helping support the site too. right but you know don't like i wouldn't get like a baseball cap that was like september 11th memorial i might get something in the gift right shop. or like would you get a baseball cap that was like the killing fields no like that feels gross right it feels weird yeah. um one of the things that I saw in one of the articles, this has already been like an eight hour episode, but one of the things I saw in the articles also talked about, you know, when we're talking about this dark scale was talking about how before the National United Flight 93 Memorial was created, there was a farmer who had set up tours of the field that was like 65 bucks a pop mm -hmm. to like go and look at the field where the plane crashed. But it was the thing was, is that it was like, it was just a farmer and he was just putting that money in his pocket. Yeah. Interesting. And like, that is a thing where like the site is dark, but then the sort of twisting of it into a capitalist yeah, yeah. Like made it even darker. Well, it's like, yeah, that's why I say like, I'm maybe like doing a little bit of self-justification when I'm like, Oh, the gift shops are fine. Cause like, yeah, sometimes it feels like maybe it's not super fine, but yeah. And I'm trying to think, I know that at the Holocaust Memorial, it sort of dumps you out into a little cafeteria, mm -hmm. but I was glad for that. Cause I was like, I need a moment. Like yeah. I, I've, I need to well, sit and it's the quietest cafeteria. Oh ever. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people um, are just sitting there eating their like $18 pizzas very quietly. Like lots of kosher food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like I they do have a gift shop there. 
my memory is that it's pretty tasteful. They're not selling t-shirts and stuff. It's right. Like, it's a lot it's of It's probably books. books. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, just weird little aside. I'm just wondering mm-hmm. if you ran across, and I don't even know if this is like a term that anyone has coined, but like uh-huh. it seems like adjacent to the whole dark tourism thing is like weird tourism, where it's like not necessarily dark murdery death sites but like mm-hmm. i think of things like you know going by area 51 or going to loch ness or like mm. you know stuff that's more you know roswell you know things like that that is like yeah. it, it feels like it's in the same ballpark but it's a little different yeah i didn't run any i didn't run across any of that stuff because my bet would be that that sort of falls under like supernatural tourism yeah um which, which, which might be kind of is, borderline you know like if like ghost tours are kind of borderline because a lot of that is about mm-hmm. like the hanging trees and things like that mm-hmm. which falls under dark tourism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then when you're talking about things that are more urban legendy or aliens or mm-hmm. cryptids or you know right. that, that gets a little more fantastical and it feels right. like that moves it somewhat out of the realm of the dark right Yeah, it's, it is, it's all very interesting because there are, there are now like dark tourism touring companies Mm -hmm. that will take you to, you know, there's, uh, I think it's like darktourism.com and they are a dark tourism travel company. I mean, you had the idea, I'm not going to go into the details because we may still do it at some point, but you had Mm -hmm. the idea of the app, the travel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The thing about that to me, the spot where it gets icky for me is these are places that will take you into these are companies that will take you into places of conflict Mm -hmm. so like please uh alert me if my geography is wrong but it's i think there's a place where you can go and it's like where israel borders with syria am i like completely off base on that no i mean that would be the west one yeah i think far northern israel Mm -hmm. and like beyond the west bank because west bank borders jordan Mm-hmm. And like you can watch the civil war that's happening in Syria. Yeah, that no, that that's a that's a hard no for me. That yeah. that feels that's that's just that gross. feels that feels very coliseum. It feels very public execution. Um, yeah, I have to no, me. I have no interest in that kind of thing. Like, yeah, I think you can go to uh, places will take you into like you know Kashmir uh, for like similar reasons. And right. Like, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So there's that. But then it's also interesting, you know, when you're talking to people who sort of poo-poo the idea of dark tourism, who have no problem going to the Anne Frank house. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, to me, the Anne Frank house is incredibly fucking that's dark. dark. I'm sorry. That's dark tourism. Yeah. Like, and and that's the interesting thing is that like they won't turn their nose up at going to the Anne Frank Museum or going to the September 11th Memorial Museum, but they will be, you know. They'll judge me for going to the side of the North Hollywood shootout. Right. Or even, you know, others are going to Dealey Plaza. Right. You know, that'll be like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm to me, I'm not sure where the maybe it's because of how I'm experiencing them, but it is not that different for me to go and see Dealey Plaza than it is for me to go well to the Anne Frank house. Like we're we're at midnight now, so I'll I'll curtail my rant about this. But like (laughs) um, you know, to me it gets into as a horror fan, you know, it's the high class, low class thing. Mm. of like you know people get real like snooty about like they won't refer to shirley jackson as 
a horror writer, mm. you know, with like The Haunting of Hill House. Or they'll, if there's a horror movie that they like, they have to call it a supernatural thriller. Mm-hmm. because that sounds more acceptable or, or now there's this new category of literary horror and i'm like i don't even know what the fuck that is you know like mm. it, it seems like you know if you're trying to make those distinctions between the tower of london where horrible things happened mm-hmm. and say the burke and Hare house which i think is probably less sanctioned mm-hmm. you know the, the scottish inn burke the burke and Hare inn like that's fucking arbitrary and and you're just you're just trying to uh let yourself off the hook like, I'm sorry, everyone has an interest in this stuff. And anyone yeah. who claims that they don't, that they're just such a sensitive, delicate little flower um, that only wants positivity and light in their life. Like, I, and, I just don't believe you. I don't well, think- and the thing is, is like, there might be people that are like, I'm sorry, I can't handle going to auschwitz now. I can't handle going to the September oh, 11th Memorial. I can't handle Dealey Plaza. Right, but when you make Frank House. blanket statements about dark tourism or horror fiction or true crime or anything. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, like, I'm all about dark tourism. I'm not sure I want to go to Auschwitz. Right. Like on a personal level, that one hits a little too close to home. Mm-hmm. But I don't judge people who go there. Like that, that's that's you know what's personal to me. Right. Know? Yeah. It's the the people I get annoyed with are like I said, it's like it's like the you know, my middle school math teacher who thought I was gonna be a serial killer because I read Stephen King. You know, it's, yeah. it's it's that that blanket judgmentalness about other people's interests, which you probably share. You just you rationalize it in a way. Right. You know, you call, you know, your interest in true crime, you call it, no, I like to read about history. It's fucking true crime, motherfucker. Like, you know, don't. (laughs) To be clear, Scotty is not talking to me right now. He's talking (laughs) to all of y'all. I'm I'm talking to you, listener. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we better go. On that note. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review share comment on our posts we love hearing from you guys we've gotten a couple of suggestions about topics for episodes um don't think they've gone ignored as always stay weird stay curious we'll see you in a few weeks bye bye listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing